Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast, where every other week you can get your bi-weekly fix of horror movie history. For this episode, I'm starting off my franchise's reviews with Critters, and I'm joined by guest Nathan Bartlebaugh. Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thanks, Trey, so much for having me on. This uh, this series definitely fits well into my wheelhouse. Is over at Phantom Galaxy, we talk about science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and this is a nice little hybrid uh, series. Yeah, absolutely. It's got the sci-fi in there for sure, and it's got the the comedy horror. I think it's got a lot of everything. So, I think the way we're going to do this because there's not a whole lot of facts on critters themselves. I think we're just going to go ahead and run down these movies as they go in the series. And if Nathan, if you have any interesting facts along the way, we can throw those in or talk about it because I know you've been watching a lot of critters coverage with the documentaries and everything. Yes. Yes, I have, <laughs> <laughs> which there was a certain point when I'm like, why am I doing this? But uh, it, it all, it all ended up being a lot of fun. Yeah. I think these movies are fun for the most part, if not good. But um, yeah, I think we'll we'll go ahead and get started. I want to get that. I should have got that four pack for these episodes, but I didn't. You've had a chance to partake in those a little bit. We'll just go ahead and get started. I will go ahead and set up the first critters for us. Nathan, was there anything you wanted to say on this one that you had learned or anything that you went through? About Critters 1? Yeah. I mean, outside of the fact that... So it comes around, it's 1986, right? And it's definitely yes. firmly in that we're making a horror film, but we're also making a comedy that is sort of referencing or reflexive on horror films at the same time. And so, like, obviously, the main reference point is Gremlins, right? And then it seems like you have Gremlins, you have Critters, and Critters is the bridge somewhere between Gremlins, Critters, and Tremors. It's like the perfect trilogy of we're making <laughs> a, a horror comedy that's basically reaching back to 1950s monster movies. Yeah. And the reason I mentioned that, Nathan, and I did read about the uh, the 1950s monster movies, what they were going for. But I know this one's been a lot of times compared to gremlins and stated as maybe like a rip off of gremlins. But this is something where I didn't know if you had, if they talked about in the documentaries or not, but it, I think the director has been on record to say, you know, the script of this was put together before gremlins went into pre-production. Did you hear that? Are you? Yeah, there, there were a couple mentions of that. And I think people always tend to say that. And it did tend to happen a lot in the 80s because it was just throw a stone and you're going to hit a similar idea. It's like Don Coscarelli talking about, he was always disappointed that Beastmaster was treated like a Conan ripoff, which is exactly what it feels like. But all when you hear Coscarelli talk about all the ideas and the book that he actually pulled it from and things like that, you realize it's just sort of a thing that was happening. It was sort of a zeitgeist at the time. Everybody was kind of thinking in the same line and direction. And I want I do have a couple of interesting facts or ideas that that play into this that I think suggest that critters being a quote-unquote ripoff of of gremlins was probably incidental in some ways and purposeful in others now the thing is 86 is two years after 1984 it's not a lot of time but <laughs> unless you unless you are well the reason i mentioned that though is like you know 
the two year difference is if you're full moon, if you're Charles Band, then sure, you can make like 10 Gremlins ripoffs in that amount of time, which I think is what he did. You know, you definitely had ghoulies pop right out, you think, the year after. And that's definitely like Ghoulies is clearly looking at Gremlins and making a ripoff movie. Uh, Joe Dante himself is on record of saying that of all the movies that were spawned from Gremlins, he feels like Critters is a pretty good one. And I think Critters was received pretty well, too, at the time. And I know when I saw it, I sort of interacted with it differently than I interacted with Gremlins. But here's, here's something interesting. And I came across this stuff years ago in the early days of the podcast, the very, very early days when the Phantom Galaxy was actually Pop Culture Ninja was the original podcast. We did this, um, whether it was well, whether it was a smart idea or not, we went and we were doing all of the fantastic films, meaning fantasy uh, involved films of Steven Spielberg. So not all the dramas, but all the movies that involved some fantasy, horror, sci-fi element. And then we included things like Jaws as well. But in going through that, we just started at the beginning and sort of went all the way through. I, there were certain elements that I'd always know, known about, but I wasn't really um, very clear on particularly in the development of those early films, when you get to like, you've got that run where you've get E.T., you get Poltergeist, and you get Gremlins. And now, yes, Poltergeist is not directed by Spielberg and neither is Gremlins, but he clearly has a very like tight hand in them. And what's happening is before E.T. is actually made, I don't know if you're, you're aware of this, are you aware of this script? And I've actually read the script. It's been out there for years. It's called Night Skies. No, I'm and not. it's a script that Spielberg had worked on with John Sayles and, and who else was involved in it? Um, I think the, the screenwriter that also worked with them when they did E.T., um, Melissa Matheson, they were working on E.T. Or no, excuse me. This was at this was post Raider. Was this uh, when did this happen? This was after I think this script goes into production. Well, not goes into production, but this script is being worked on sort of after Jaws and things like that. And so it's before E.T. happens. And Night Skies is specifically sort of based off of an incident. Like, a, you know, here's one of the things I think influences a lot of these things. In the, in the late 70s and early 80s, aliens were obviously all the rage. Like, not just aliens in terms of pop culture entertainment, but aliens as like, a preoccupation, you know what I mean? Uh, those time life books about alien encounters and alien abductions. And are you familiar with like the Hopkinsville demons? Like the story about the family that supposedly was visited by these little creatures potentially from space and they attack them in their farmhouse one night and then they sort of disappear. I don't know if I am. I'm familiar with a lot of those. I feel like those urban legends or alien stories from the time, but not that one. No. Yeah. So the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, you can look it up. And they, this script was sort of tuned into that. And the idea, I'll try to keep it very quick. It's these group of, and they even call them in the script, ETs, little monsters come down from space. And it was, he was, the original title of this was going to be watch the skies. And then it turned into night skies. And of course, watch the skies is a reference to invasion of the body snatchers. Right. And these creatures come down. There's this family in a farmhouse. Their son is, uh, my memory serves right. I think he's autistic. And so he is sort of at one point isolated from the family and he's outside and he meets one of these creatures. Rest of the creatures are like, they're like a gang. They have individual personalities, they even have individual names, but they're little monsters and they terrorize a the family. They're, they're actually like 
dissecting the life livestock and stuff like that. They're killing cows. And at one point they take the little boy and they want to dissect him as well. But he has struck up a relationship with this other alien, which is a kinder, gentler, more childlike alien. Sound familiar, right? And mm-hmm. that particular alien has kind of relationship. Meanwhile, the dad is a shotgun and he, these creatures are jumping out of this. They're climbing on the ceilings. They, they have their spaceship at one point. They're going to fire upon the family's house. And all of this stuff creates this film that basically you see that later Spielberg eventually kind of like lets the script go. And uh, which is because it gets kind of downbeat towards the end. The the friendly alien fights one of the uh, the the gang of aliens and they get in their ship and leave him on, (laughs) leave him on Earth. The family gets (laughs) to go on about their lives and he's wandering around in the desert wounded and vultures are circling him. And that's the end of the script. (laughs) Like, oh, wow. But that that movie clearly gets broken up into three other movies like E.T. takes the friendly alien. That's what Spielberg takes and, and goes on with that. The family under siege by this supernatural element becomes poltergeist. And then the little monsters go on and become gremlins. But if you look at the script of Night Skies and you look at what happens in the film Critters, where you have that it, – it, I forgot rewatching this. I forgot how much of that movie, at least the base movie, is a siege narrative where they're trapped inside that farmhouse fighting these little monsters – who all have these kind of distinctive personalities and are very clearly space aliens that are in, you know, they're, they're monsters and they're there to feed, but they're also kind of getting a kick out of attacking everybody. Right. (laughs) So they have a little bit of a personality and they're antagonizing the people in the farmhouse. And you look at the basic beats of that. I'm like, okay, well, is it a ripoff of gremlins or is it, or they all just derived from this one script that was probably out there in the air in this event that happened. So I think that that part is the is the part that maybe seems like a Gremlins ripoff to me. The thing that makes it more like a Gremlins ripoff is it's doing what Gremlins did. Is that it is a comedy about what would have been a serious sci fi movie in the fifties, right? And yeah, and I didn't. That's very fascinating about the that early script. And it seems like so Spielberg was was he involved in that script, like putting that together? He had a hand in that. That was going to be his next movie. The other thing is after E.T. was successful, at one point he and Melissa Matheson were putting together an outline and it, for E.T. 2. And E.T. 2 is going to be called E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears. Oh, wow. And it was literally going to be, again, about a group of aliens that come down looking for E.T., who's apparently like some refugee alien <laughs> that they need to get a hold of. And and Elliot goes out to the ship thinking he, he and his friends go out to find uh, – E.T., they think he's coming back because he picks up the signal, but instead it's these evil aliens that kidnap all these kids and torture Elliot, and then E.T. has to come back and save him. Wow, he was getting dark there because I know um, <laughs> the original, I and I think he had cleaned this up, same story that we talked about with E.T., but for Gremlins, I know the original um, thing that Chris Columbus put together from everything you hear was very much a darker movie and there was more violence and everything. And, yeah. you know, with the mom's head getting chopped off and rolled down the stairs and things like that. So it seems like Spielberg was in kind of a dark place when it, <laughs> well, I think he was time. working with people who were like making a little bit edgier. Spielberg's probably is probably the guy that took the edge off, you know, uh, right. was probably right. always like, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. We had to move back. Not making E.T. two was probably the right thing. But when you look at the scripts for E.T. two and this night skies, you can kind of see the, the the pinpoints of gremlins. So are not gremlins of critters. Cause I think yes. what critters ends up like is much more night skies than what gremlins ends up like. Gremlins basically just has little monsters terrorizing 
a family is really the only connective tissue there, you know, yes. between those yeah. two ideas. Yeah, but there were so many of those little little creatures that popped yeah, up and horror and stuff. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you mentioned ghoulies and that even you get into stuff like Puppet Master would be in the same class. Even those aren't creatures. You've got dolls around that time. I mean, you've little, got little diminutive mont things coming around, scurrying around, attacking you. That kind of stuff always captured my imagination though when I was younger. Like, it's, I don't know why it was, but if monsters were giant, like they're going to destroy a city, that freaked me out. And if they were small and could stab you like from under your bed, that freaked me out. <laughs> the medium-sized monsters, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking for this for a while. Let me go ahead and just set up a quick um, synopsis and some info about the film, and then we can talk about the movie itself but i appreciate all that background there nathan because i i did not know any of that really so this was like you said uh released in 86 and it was directed by stephen herrick and i <laughs> everything it seemed like around this time was playing on that uh tagline with scream in it right because the tagline here from letterbox says they eat so fast you don't have time to scream <laughs> Yes, yeah. And we've got the synopsis of a massive ball of furry creatures from another world eat their way through a small Midwestern town followed by intergalactic bounty hunters opposed only by militant townspeople. I don't know about that synopsis, but essentially what we have is, you know, this family and they live in this farmhouse in this small town and they basically have, you know, they see a ship land and we know early on we get this sci-fi very cool alien stuff where these bounty hunters are dispatched to go after this species called the Krites who have a ship. They got enough gas. They're just worried about getting food. So they make a pit stop on earth. And this family that lives on the farmhouse is basically assaulted by these critters or these Krites. And I think that's a very, a better starting point than what Letterboxd gave us there. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Well, the other thing is they seem to have gotten confused with the second film. That's what I was going to form say. the giant ball. Yeah. yeah, and they're not really assaulting the town. The people assaulting the town are the the bounty hunters, right? <laughs> which is a which is an interesting point. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a that's a good setup, and I think that what I didn't remember is how much of that film really is focused on that family in that house. But there is a whole other section of this film that details what's happening in the town related to the bounty hunters. Yeah, absolutely. And what I mean, you're a big sci-fi guy, Nathan. How do you feel about the alien stuff in the beginning of this film or in that ship and they're getting that kind of stuff set up? Because I think that's a really cool element of this movie and kind of sets it apart a little bit from other things happening around the time. Well, I think two things. It does show that Critters has, uh, at least in comparison to the other little monster movies, it has a little bit more of a budget. like. It's funny when watching all of these movies and going back and revisiting these movies, it's forced me to refine my idea of what we talk about when we talk about A movies versus B movies. You know, I think a lot of the movies that we probably think of as B movies were really C movies yeah. <laughs> back in the day. I think Critters is a pretty good example of a legitimate B movie, right? Mm -hmm. It's got a pretty good cast on it. Uh, there were a lot of movies like this being made at this time. It's not the A-list stars. It's not the giant, the most big budget you could possibly get. It's not the budget that Aliens has. It's not Return of the Jedi or anything. Yeah, it's not Return of the Jedi, but it's going to be playing in theaters where the same people that bought a ticket to Return of the Jedi who bought a ticket to Aliens are going to have the potential to buy a ticket to Critters. And I think 
that that is what sort of and i mean the same is true of some of those full moon movies but there's an idea here critters has been made for a mainstream audience it's going to be a little bit more having watched return of the jedi and having watched alien and things like this they're going to be be looking for something a little bit more sophisticated i think critters does a nice job of taking the the 50s charm and the sort of gee whiz feel and a very more innocent feel and then crafting it onto this movie that's going to give you some you know the special effects are not the same level but they're not bad either they're pretty good and particularly when we get to the what the Kyoto brothers have done with the gremlins and excuse me the Kyoto brothers have done with the critters themselves that's all really cool but the sci-fi stuff is what got me into the movie because when i saw this movie i guess i should set that part up is i saw this movie as a kid it was for whatever reason my parents were always like when they had to be out you know for the evening or something they'd rent a movie for us and we would be with my grandparents and we we'd just put it in and watch it and it was always end up in these little monster movies. The times I remember that happening, Ghoulies, <laughs> that was a bust. And Munchies, that was a bust. But Critters, and I, you know, I was a kid who loved to be scared just to a certain point. At that point, like I, we're talking early elementary school, right? And so I liked it to a point to be scared. But I always wanted something that was going to maybe lighten up. I, I like to be able to laugh because, no big surprise here, I'm always thinking about things. Uh, at night, if I'm sitting there thinking about the quills on the critters and what it must be like to get <laughs> shot in the neck with that, I'd like to also be able to think about the bounty hunters and the missions they could go on. Like, that's a nice distraction for my brain. I don't have to think about it. So I love that this started out in a sci-fi vein, and I love that they set up this kind of bigger world. Here's the other thing that I think is really kind of cool that I didn't really pay attention to when I was a kid, is that Critters is essentially, from a certain perspective, is it's a comedy. It's a horror movie. It's also a Western <laughs> Because what happens in the beginning, the bandits break out of the jail and the bounty hunters are set on their track, right? Yeah. And they they run into a small Midwestern town that has the drunk, the grizzled cop, you know, the family on the homestead. It has all of that stuff that you'd have in a 310 to Yuma or something like that, right? Yeah. So I like that, you know, you have the sci-fi kind of space opera and you see some of these creatures in the beginning and they have a very kind of Star Wars feel to them. You get the Krites like talking in their other language and, you know, uh, various bad behavior. But then when you do have them on Earth, it is really much. It does play kind of like a Western. And I do find it funny that the bounty hunters do a lot more. They don't kill more people, but they certainly do a lot more sort of damage to the town, collateral damage in their in their hunt for the Krites. But I think that adds a kind of flavor to the movie that's that's what helps it sort of stand apart, that I think is the reason that it was maybe uh, so well accepted at the time, is it does work as a horror movie, that bit in the house. I think that's one of the reasons Night Sky got dropped, is like, well, there's not a lot to this. These little creatures come, and then they leave again. And they've built a movie around this. Stephen Herrick and the scriptwriters have built a movie around this that has a lot of different avenues to go to. Even the fact, I like that even the movie Critters, right, the title Critters, you know, when I, if before this film was around, the Critters definitely gives you the feeling of like, Oh, it's, it's monsters. It's, mm-hmm. you know, but critters, varmints, you know, that's all Western vernacular. Yes, absolutely. And, I, and you could make a critters. I, I, you could tell somebody, Oh, critters is a, it's a, it's a Western about a, a bunch of uh, bounty hunters chasing some bandits into a small <laughs> town. And you'd be wrong. Like, yeah. That like is, what was, what was that one grabbers or something like that? That was the yeah, yeah the, the the one with the the, the drunks in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the, the aliens were allergic to alcohol. Um, so, I like that about the movie, and I think it gives it an identity that sets it apart just a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like you said before, there's the I think you have to have the two different storylines to keep things going. But I just, you know, when I watched this for the first time, which was not long ago, I know you have watched these previously a long time back. But when I first watched it, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And rewatching it this time, I was just like, I love this opening. I love how they set it up. It does give you that feeling of some kind of 80s sci-fi movie. And I love that they start off with that tone. And then once we get to Earth, you know, we're we're set up with a pretty goofy uh, opening here with a slingshot and, you know, a hired hand and the the son of the family that that live here. But I think when you get to it, there's some pretty vicious stuff. Now, we don't see a whole lot of the gore and things like that, but some of the scenarios they set up are pretty, you know, I I think the thing I want to say is I was very surprised that these critters movies were just PG 13. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Nathan, what do you think since we're on here? What do you think about this cast of characters, the actors that play them, the characters themselves? What are your thoughts there? They do a really nice job of setting them up. I think that's one of the things that struck me is they spend a lot of time and they did this, you know, quite frequently in the 80s. Honestly, they develop these characters as much as the characters in Gremlins are developed. Maybe even maybe even a little bit more, you know, because you get to see that family, but then you also get to see into the town and you see M.M. at Walsh and you see Lynn Shay there as the uh, she's uh, working the the soundboard there at the at, I guess she's at the at the jail and at the uh, at the sheriff's department. They're all, you know, they've got one they've got one jail cell right there. And again, in that sort of ode to the the Western, you know, the the town's got one jail cell that sits almost directly across <laughs> from where uh, where everybody else works. That was typical in the eighties, right? You know, so you can always reach out and grab the keys or whatever. But <laughs> in that in that setting, you get to know M.M. at Walsh's character Harv, and you get to know. Like I say, Lin Shay, you get to know the guy who's uh, driving around and he's on the beat and he's talking to them back and forth. And all of that stuff, I think, works really well. And it's set and the family is set up well. But I like Billy Greenbush, who has done a ton of Western films before this. You know, he's got he's he's established at this point. M.M. at Walsh has done. And I think that the producers and the director were talking about how that when they saw M.M. at Walsh in blood simple they were like we need to get this guy for our movie he's got to be the sheriff <laughs> and these choices are just the right ones and, and don opper is you know it's funny because barry opper is one of the producers and don opper is his brother and of course bob shea who ends up being the head of new line and lynn shea is his sister so at one point barry opper's like look look i promise this wasn't a case of okay you can have your sister if i can have my brother <laughs> it's like it just you know yes they were working with us on our projects but it seemed like they were right for that and, and i do get that i think don opper brings a certain quirkiness to charlie that works he talked about how they tried to have him have almost like a uh, buster keaton-esque walk he sort of does this kind of weird little waddle but there there are certain character beats that i think work billy zane shows up for a a few minutes but that scene at the dinner table where he's there and he's with the daughter and the father's being disapproving what i like about this though and d wallace as the mother she's really good i what i like is they feel like a believable family and scott grimes is a little kid like there's never a point where dad is some completely outrageous jerk seems like what he is he's, he's like reasonable a guy who he, runs a yeah. farm he's yeah they're all reasonable characters and it so they call back to 50s movies where you know they kind of leave it to beaver g whizness but then 
they also kind of grounded in a certain reality. So when the critters show up, you're with these people. And that's not just them. It's the whole town. You, you get to see what happens. in the bounty hunters, too, like the bounty hunters storyline, I love that they've chosen that idea of having them be faceless. You know, they're basically mimics. And so they can choose on their way down to the planet. They're going to choose a life form that will allow them to fit in. And so he picks the rock star. And I thought that they wanted to get Billy Idol for that. And then they, they, they were, their thought process was, you know how much trouble it'll be to deal with Billy Idol, <laughs> but it'll be worth it. But they couldn't get him, so instead they get um, uh, is it Terrence Mann? Yes, and he yep. he was just coming off of Cats at that point. He was a Broadway guy, but they got him. They knew some the guy who wrote the song that Power of the Night song that that his character. That, oh, uh, yeah, I can't think of his name, Johnny. Um, I don't remember the last name of the rock star, uh, but he's the rock Johnny Steele. Johnny Steele, thank you. The, the the Johnny Steele song, like that guy who wrote the song was like, oh, wait, I got a guy that can do this for you. And he knew Terrence Mann. And I think that was the right choice because Terrence Mann's a lot of fun. He has a he has a Tim Curry-ness to him. I don't know if you felt that, but I did. Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, the funny thing about Don on Opera is I think they I think I had read somewhere that they, you know, they were already they were all friends, I think, making this movie. And they had written this role specifically for him. Um as their friends. So it, it seemed like it fit in this one. I definitely, now we'll talk about how he plays into maybe later films later on. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I really love uh, M- Emmett Walsh's gruff sheriff in this. I really like Billy Greenbush. It's all, it's funny, but D Wallace is the biggest name in this movie, I would say. And I feel like she is maybe the most underused of the whole family in the movie, because I think we get a good portion of everyone else. But yeah, that, that Billy Zane, stuff is pretty good i mean it's it's awkward and it's funny i think it's a really good scene at the dinner table but yeah i think the cast top to bottom is is really cool and it's really cool how you get to dive into everyone you get to meet the preacher in town and his congregation and what goes on there good scene yeah they they the bowling alley like they conceive of these scenes and they build them so you're not just sort of rushing from one thing to another which tends to be this big question with these movies is what happens in between people getting bitten, right? Like in any of these sorts of movies involving little monsters and critters, isn't really about that. Critters is a sci-fi adventure movie that does happen to feature these little monsters. They have some personality too, in this movie that I think uh, is maybe why they felt they could make more sequels because they're actually pretty cool little monsters. When you think about like their design, like yeah. they get to be cute. This is where I think the biggest gremlins ripoff happens is right here. They get to be creepy and monstrous like the gremlins, but they get to be cute and cuddly like Gizmo, like at the same time. And I think that works, though, for the movie, because at one point it's completely ridiculous, right? That they're they're just a at some points, they're just a ball rolling across the ground, <laughs> which which in the documentary, they say, look, the Kyoto brothers did some amazing work on these little puppets and the way they design them like it's like a porcupine and it's like kind of like a bear but then it can stand up on its hind legs and these just it looks cute and it's just a giant mouth of teeth right and so these uh, puppets are very detailed but the caddos admit that you know for some of these scenes all we needed to do was get a remote control bowling ball (laughs) and roll it (laughs) and and so and in the beginning they weren't remote control they were just a bowling ball with a fur pelt on it and they used 
roll them out. And it, it, Lynn Shea remembers him saying, we're going to roll the crites. And then here come the bowling balls. <laughs> and everyone had to run away. Uh, but in the context of the movie, I think it works a lot. And I so those those monsters, I think, are what ultimately brings the whole movie together because they're so interesting and they're silly at the same time. Like it's ridiculous. You're not afraid of it. Then those quills come out and they fire those things into your neck. And that's horrifying. And being eaten by three or four of these things at the same time, that's horrifying as well. Yeah. And I think charming was the right word for the Krites because they are they're They are cute. Like you said, they're well designed and really they just seem like a natural predator, right? They have a way to neutralize their prey and then take them out essentially. And then, you know, eat them because that's what, (laughs) that's what they're here for is to get some food, which is a, I don't think we talked about that, but that's a pretty funny concept in itself. They're just stopping by to get something to eat at earth on their way across the galaxy. Right. Is that pretty much how they set it up? But yeah, yeah. They're just chilling They're They're on the run but they've got their ship. And I think that's the other aspect by making them. That's what struck me as a kid and kind of, I think maybe even like relaxed me in the beginning is like, Oh wait, these are little things with, you know, they're, they're people in a sense, they were prisoners, they can talk and they can act, you know? So then you're sort of, then you see what they can do, but at first they're not just mindless little monsters. They are put in a different context. They're anthropomorphized a little more than you would expect. And I guess perfect synergy for this, uh, Trey. You know, it's funny because I think you started watching these movies and I bought the Scream Factory set, which I really can't recommend enough because I think uh, I didn't expect it. But each one of these movies has they put together at least about an hour documentary for each one of them, in addition to other special features. And they really for even even the third and fourth movies that were a little bit lower budget, they pack as much information and as much of these actors and producers and writers in as they can. So you get a pretty good top to bottom feel for what they were trying to do with these movies. And because of the nature of these movies, it's pretty good. So I definitely recommend that. But I was also at the same time when going back and rewatching the old outer limits TV show. Did you ever watch any of that as a kid or, or even more yeah. recently? Yeah. I've watched some of the outer limits stuff. Um, I used to see it back on TV every now and then when I was a kid, but I haven't seen it in so long. And see, I had, I, yeah, I had memory of certain episodes, but it was funny because going through these episodes at about the same time that I was watching these Critters movies and there's, there's two episodes in, in uh specific that I saw that I thought, you know what, the people that have, that have worked on Critters, this first movie had to have absolutely been a fan of these Outer Limits episodes <laughs> and Outer Limits would often feature these alien, you know, and Outer Limits, you think about the time frame that when it came out, which is sort of around the same time as the Twilight Zone was much more sci-fi based and would try to almost make mini movies because they had an hour to play with mm-hmm. essentially an hour of a block time probably ended up being more like 45 minutes with the commercials but they had that time to play with and as a result you look at the time frame if you're talking about this in the 60s and then now we're in the 80s there's plenty of time for people to be inspired by that i mean inspired or ripped off depending on what you what you think <laughs> harlan ellison a year before this is like you know or a couple years before this is uh, trying to settle a lawsuit uh with terminator right with james cameron because the elements of terminator are very similar to a plot uh a script he wrote for the outer limits called soldier that featured soldiers from the future a good one and a bad one that showed up at the same place and uh i don't think it's quite that um overt in this case but there's a classic episode of 
the Outer Limits called the Xanti Misfits. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, but essentially this planet and these aliens, the Xantis, have taken... Uh, humans don't know this. It's again out in the Midwest and suddenly they're attacked by these creatures that are very malevolent and they have everyone surrounded and they are little ants with like human faces and no one knows where they came from. But then the Xantis explain, Hey, these are the rejects. These are our criminals. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to deal with them. So we know, we know earth is a place that if we put them down here. You guys are going to kill them pretty quick for us. <laughs> so that idea is sort of the same thing as critters, right? That you've got these, monsters that look like creepy crawlies to us but in reality they are these sort of the darker elements of this of this society that doesn't want them anymore and that's kind of what the critters are the other episode is maybe is not as good and it was called i think it was called cry of silence and i remember it specifically seeing when i was a kid it was about killer tumbleweeds that's oh, all wow. i need to say about it so you can see how cry <laughs> yeah. of silence and the zanti misfits form together as critters yes absolutely that I mean that sounds right on right on the money with that, but you know every at some point everything rips off everything, right, Nathan? <laughs> We're just well, no, see, and in this case, I think of this as sort of like it's it's the giant uh, stew pot of pop culture, and you're pulling yeah. things from here. I think Critters, truthfully, is pretty inspired for this kind of a movie. I think that's why I love it. I still have a do. I think it's the greatest movie ever. I don't, uh, but I it, rewatching it, I realize there's more than just a nostalgic love that drives my. Uh, enjoyment of critters it's a legitimately pretty good movie and even at the time when it came out uh, many of the critics were fans of it you know they thought yeah. that it worked because it it's a smartly written movie it's got some smartly written dialogue but it is only trying to do a very certain thing which is do a loving homage to a kind of movie that these people probably watched when they were growing up and give a new spin on it, a fresh spin on it. I, yep. I love, you know, look at my podcast. Hybrids are my favorite kind of thing. <laughs> and that's why, that's why I love this movie. I think if this movie wasn't as strong as it was and as versatile as it was, you couldn't have possibly spun it off into, uh, into the sequels. Yeah. And I, I think I want to talk about something here with the, cause I think this is a lot of times referred to as like a horror comedy, but I think most of the comedy would come from, just the riffing on that 50s sci-fi monster movie and kind of probably from just of the absurdity of some of the stuff that goes on with the Krites and all that. Would you would you say that's fair? There's not a lot of like straight ahead comedy in this movie, at least. Yeah, I think where the straight ahead comedy comes in is is, again, that point where maybe there was some reflexiveness with Gremlins. I think the humor that comes from sort of spoofing the 50s stuff is almost all reserved for the bounty hunter stuff, right? Like the, the amusement of the bounty hunter wearing the faces and changing the faces. And right. he looks like Johnny Steele initially. So suddenly there's this 80s rock star wandering around the small town and people are like, why are you here? But then he can look like, you know, he can look like Don Opper. He can look like the sheriff. He can look like whoever. And they definitely play with that more when we get to the second film. But that's the comedy comes here. And then it comes in from the antics that the critters get up to in the house, you know, and that the critters are cursing at them in their language. And, but I think you're right. Like it's identity. And I never want to get hung up on, well, is this a comedy horror or horror comedy? I mean, there's enough horror there that I was freaked out as a kid. There's enough comedy there that left me smiling, but it knows when to turn one off and turn one on again. Yeah, and I think the horror elements are pretty good in this. I mean, I much stronger than I remembered. Yeah, I would just call I mean, if I'm looking at this, I'm just going to call it a horror movie. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to I'm like you. I'm not going to get hung up on that kind of stuff. But 
I guess what I want to say is coming to these later, I always thought they were just horror comedies with a lot of comedy and stuff in it. But really, these at least this one is played so straight. I think I think most of the series does, too. But yeah, that's that's my thoughts on that. So, yeah, none of these movies are well. These, these, the the four that were in the original set, none of them are, and I guess the fifth one's not either. It, it, I, I do put it aside for other reasons we'll talk about, but you're right. These four movies, none of them are trying to be solely like a spoof or they like they don't have a respect for the material. I do think particularly the first film has a has an has a dual identity. They were trying to make a horror movie and they're trying to make a comedy and they allow those two genres. It's like Fright Night. They really right. allow them to and that's I don't think this movie is quite as good as Fright Night, but I think that's a good comparison because those that's a point where they let those two genres collide and a lot of the fun is the collision, yes. you know. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's that's the best. I mean, it, I think it's a hard balance to get, but I feel like that's the best scenario with these types of films is when it can be fun and scary at the same time. Right. It's when your comedy keeps interrupting your horror. Exactly. Or your horror keep interrupting your comedy. It's not it's not a problematic thing. It's a it's a feature, not a bug, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Nathan, do you have anything else you want to say into Critters before we get into um, recommendations on this thing? I, th- I don't think so. I'm trying to think again. It's oh. Funny, uh, uh, just as, as a bit from the uh, documentary, is this movie, and the thing that surprised me, there's an alternate ending here, and I don't know if we're going to do spoilers on it, but you know, there's something that happens. There are very few deaths in this film, but there is something that sort of catastrophic happens to the family, and uh, family's still, they're together, but you know, their house is blasted to pieces. And the film that went, that comes out in theaters and the one I saw growing up had a had a very different ending on it. But apparently the ending originally had it so that, you know, they live, they survive, but they're going to have to move because their house is blown to smithereens. And hey, that's OK, because that's what happens sometimes. But yeah. you get to live. Right. But I think they were saying that Bob Shea, uh, he had just made a movie with the guy and the guy comes out and he's like, that's a little downbeat. Like, what about that little device the kids got, which is just supposed to be a communicator, right? Like yeah. it initially. But it's like, what if he what if he turns it on and just rebuilds their house? Which at a certain point makes no sense, but it forced them to then suddenly, now we've got a how are we can do this house effect. So it was very cool to see how they do, which is a pretty neat effect. And actually, I think it works out pretty well in the tone of critters, the movie that it's supposed to be. I think the tone works better to have them have a little bit of a like a reprieve, right? You know, when the cat in the hat comes in and cleans everything up for you at the end, <laughs> like it's, it's nice to have that moment. And there, you know, the house pulls itself back together and the cat gets sucked up into all of this. And then the kid opens the mailbox and the cat's in the mailbox. That's a pretty good gag. So, but, uh, but they did it so late that prints of this movie went out both ways. And they were saying that some of the producers and uh, the Keanu brothers were saying, they knew people that were calling them family members and they were talking and they realized that they were seeing two different endings of the movie. And the guy's <laughs> like, wait a minute, what the, no, the house blew up. And he's like, no, the house came back. <laughs> so he's like, was this like clue? Why we have to, so it wasn't intentional, but at one point they gone out with two, two separate endings. That's fun. And I'm just going to put a spoiler warning at the beginning of this, because really, if you're yeah. talking about all these sequels, you kind of have to talk about things from the previous ones. But it almost makes more sense where they went with the second one to have the house blown up because the family's not in, what is it? Grover's bend. Is that the name of the town? Yeah. yeah Grover's they're bend, they're yeah. not there anyway. So yeah, that's, it's a very interesting point though. And 
I love when that happens because it seems like that happens more often than not. Like a different print will get out there. And yeah. I, I don't know how that, that would never happen today, I feel like. But uh, that'd be pretty cool if you saw something different than what you what were they were seeing in the theaters or anything like that. But all right, Nathan, do you want to bring us home with your rating and recommendation on this thing? Yeah, I it probably sounds like maybe I'm a little low compared to where I am, but I get this a 7.5. I think it's a solidly good movie. Uh, it, it doesn't quite go to the levels. That, again, some of those films in the 80s that, that we all love do, but I do love this movie. And I think it is heads above a lot of the other Gremlins you know, centric sort of movies that came out that were similar. I do think Gremlins is a little bit better. But part of that is I'm a huge Joe Dante fan. But Stephen Herrick, he had a pretty good run here in the 80s and in the early 90s. It, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Uh, this is his only horror film, but you can see that same presence sort of in those movies. I it's a it's a uh, to me it's a it's a buy it, and I would say buy this box set even if you don't love the other movies. Uh, you can usually get it, particularly when things are on sale at Shout Factory. I think I got it for like twenty four dollars. It comes in a nice like hard cardboard stock box. And then each movie has an individual case and a reversible sleeve. So what's cool is you get the posters that usually came out in the theater and the, the poster for critters I was always familiar with on the box was the big critter. Cause I guess we didn't mention there was a big, like full suit critter at one point that shows up Papa critter or whatever. (laughs) They never explained that guy exactly, but uh, he's on the cover and he's imposing, but the flip side is a cover I've never seen before, which is great. It shows, it's just a silhouette of the farmhouse at night at just a, around dusk as the lights are going down. And then framing that shot is just teeth. And it says something like, this battle began in another galaxy. Tonight is going to end on the Browns farm or something like that. So I thought, I was like, well, that's a cool poster. That would have had me, and then the word critter. So I'm like, that would have had me engaged without spoiling your monster and things like right. that you know right yeah and um surprisingly nathan i'm right there with you at a 7.5 on this and oh wow we're in sync yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're usually close but we're always like a 0. 0.5 off <laughs> well yeah i was teetering there between 7.5 and 8 but i yeah i think earlier i came down 7.5 so that's what's going to be <laughs> i like this movie a lot as well and i've seen it twice now within a pretty short span of time and it's still um, had that resonance the second time with the critters. I love the Krites. I really do. And I love the sci-fi stuff that we get in this one. I would say buy it as well. There's these certain series and I think we've talked about this back and forth before. My ratings aren't going to go up from here on the 7.5, but I would say absolutely <laughs> buy that box set, especially on a on a sale. I mean, there's certain series that I do have box sets for, even if I'm not necessarily a big fan of all the movies, but I think um, I'm looking forward to getting into this and watching these documentaries on this one. They make every all of them worthwhile. And and these particularly these first two movies, because they were the, the bigger budgets, they've got the best uh, like restorations and the new and newer scans for the first two. I think the other two are the same scans that are probably on the DVD. They do look better than they, they did on DVD. But the scans of the first two, the critters looks as good as you'll ever see it, most likely, unless they were to come out with a like a legitimate 4K. But I um, I think it's it's a great so great fun movie. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, you know, budget conscious, there's that DVD collection is like, what, 10 bucks for all four of the the first Critters movies. So you can get that for a decent price if you're not looking to shell out, the you know, 
whatever it is for the Shout Factory. I love that they do the individual cases. And I don't think I'd expect anything else from Shout because, you know, the um, It Lives collection also does that and is really cool. But yeah, let's go ahead and move into Critters 2, the main course. Now, with Critters 2 or with Critters, Nathan, I think it made around 13 million in the box office. So you make a movie for that low a budget you get that good a box office result. There's going to be a sequel at that point in time, right? Oh yeah, for sure. But to get in the eighties, it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what we get in critters Two is Mick Garris comes in to direct this. And I think he had previously worked on not as a director, but it worked on some episodes of amazing stories. And this is, I believe his directorial debut, but he got this gig because of his work on amazing stories. And and I think that's fair because Amazing Stories, which has a show I loved, by the way, Critters could have absolutely been an episode of Amazing Stories. So it was almost like an audition for this type of movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like the work you've seen him do and the kind of, you know, again, Amazing Stories is directly connected to Spielberg. And here's a sort of pseudo Spielberg, you know, it fits into that mold pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Mick Garrison, I've heard, We've said this before, and I know I've heard Pastor Matt say this before. Seems like a nice guy, but uh, his movies aren't necessarily my thing most of the time. And I think you feel the same way, Nathan. But yeah, here's the thing I want to say, because I he's a su- he's a super nice guy. You could tell. And, and everyone working who talks about this movie documentary, the first thing they mention is that he was such a sweet guy to work with and they love working with him. And he's so much fun to work with. And he has a great enthusiasm. He's a great podcast. And he's not. It's not even he's a bad director. I think what I I see in Mick Garrison, the reason he's gotten to make so many movies is that he is a real fan of the genre of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and he's a real um, enthusiast for it. But he's like a fanboy who's gotten to make movies. And I think his instincts as a filmmaker are not quite at the same level as his enthusiasm. At least that's been my, particularly this is being his first movie. I think Mick Garris is a guy that can get you from beginning to end, but you know, it's, it might not be the same as what someone else might bring to it because right. I think his focus is kind of tunnel vision. Sometimes he's like the, he, the thing he's got, he loves so much. He's, he, he's going to kind of do it exactly as you expect somebody might. Whereas I think the Stephen Herrick, in Critters 1, like you can see some inspiration that pops in. That's not something you wouldn't expect to see in a film like that. Yeah. And honestly, I don't I don't dislike the guy. I've listened to his podcast and he seems like such a nice guy. Like you said, I think he makes a lot of flawed movies, um, but they're being flawed movies. That doesn't mean they don't have a lot of good stuff in them, especially with something like Sleepwalkers, which we've talked about before. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On this show, actually. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But I don't know. Um, I don't want to stick on Mick Garris for this whole time, but I think, you know, it seems like his heart's in the right place. Like you said, he's very enthusiastic about the genre. He might not just be able to, like, close the deal and put all the elements together. Right. But to set up Critters 2 a little bit, I have got the and it's I don't know. It's funny to me. Uh, This one came out two years later, but it's funny to me that they keep on the food premise with this one with the tagline of get ready for seconds. They're back. And, you know, they called this one the main course. So food is like the running theme of this series. But I think this was the only one with a subtitle, right, Nathan? 
No, I think they gave the other one subtitles, at least the, because if you look it up, it's like AKA whatever, but they get really bad. So they sort of drop them like Critters 3 is like, you are what they eat is like literally like the <laughs> subtitle of the movie. And you can't tell, is that a tagline? Is it a subtitle? So things get a little wonky. I think, it, you know, Critters 4 is like, they're in space or something like that. So okay. I think that I don't remember exactly, but I know that they had taglines that were in some, depending on what copy of the movie you had, they were also the subtitle. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, but cause I was like, why did they do that for two? And then I haven't seen, cause I, you can see it when you search too. You can't really see it on any of the other ones after that. Yeah. So the synopsis reads a batch of unhatched critter eggs are mistaken for Easter eggs by the, country folk inhabitants of Grover's Bend. And before long, the ferocious furballs are on the rampage again. So I want to say something about Critters 2. I watched these in a different way than you watched them, Nathan, and I believe you had seen all these before. But from now on, from two through five, these are first time watches for me. I watched one and two because I knew I was going to have to do this episode at some point. I did one and two, and then I took a little bit of a break and I came back and watched three, four and attacks. And I think that's why with two, just to start off my thoughts on this one, is why I felt a little fatigued and felt like this was almost the same movie as one, just not as good. And we get some of the characters back. We get Charlie back and we get Ugg back and we get uh, what is it? Brad? Is that? Yeah, that's that Scott. Yeah. Um, Scott Grimes character yeah. is Brad. Yeah. yeah, and we get them back, but we don't get everyone back. We don't get the rest of the family back. Brad's kind of coming back into town after he's been away for a while. And there's kind of this stigma about him when he gets into town. There's all this gossip like you'll never believe who's getting off the bus. But what are your initial thoughts on Critters 2? So Critters 2's. After, like I mentioned how we rented all of these. I remember very, I have distinct memories of when we rented and watched these movies. And Critters 1 was that case where I think my parents rented it for us. And, you know, like, oh, here it is. You guys go watch it. And then we'll probably, we probably won't rewatch it. And yet when we had seen it, my brother and I, we told everybody else in the family, you have to watch this. So after that, we were actually really excited that there was a Critters 2. So that was like, when we rented it, it was everybody sitting down on Saturday night and we're all, you know, whole family and the grandparents and everybody else. We're all going to sit down and watch this thing together. And that's what we did. And this is a case you and I were talking earlier about, you know, as a kid having movies on VHS and that you could rewatch. And a lot of times there were only the movies that you could buy that were sold in like, you know, your Kmart or something that everyone could buy because movies were usually so expensive. You buy a, you know, a video store would buy a copy for and then you could rent that copy out. But anyone who remembers where you would take the two VCRs and make the copy of the, of the movie that we would did that with critters too. And critters was two was a movie that we watched a lot. Probably the chagrin of my parents that they copied it that way immediately without recognizing that it's a little bit rougher than critters one in terms of content. (laughs) It gets away with a PG 13, but there's a lot of, I'm not quite entirely sure as how I was quite happy as a child though, you know, because uh, you get a bounty hunter transformation into a playmate into this scene with full blown, breasts grow the clothes fall off she strides across the thing naked with a gun in her hand i mean it was and there's some pretty gruesome scenes in this too there's a lot of mutilations yeah there, there's definitely some some uh the the crate violence is a lot more in this and you see some gore and you see uh to me this is the one that feels much more like a ripoff of 
of um, Gremlins because it's kind of like, it seems like at some point Mick Garris or somebody said, you know, let's do for Easter what Gremlins did for Christmas. And I like that idea that the crate eggs end up painted and in the, they, that's some of the best stuff. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, but to me, what was disappointing initially with Critters 2, because I think you're right, it is essentially like a rehash, but the opening scenes of this movie begin in space. They're in a, they're like in a cavern on a subterranean planet somewhere. And the bounty hunters, Ugg and at this point, you don't know it because at the end of the first movie, Charlie is sort of following the bounty hunters over the hill saying, hey, I could be your engineer, right. uh, imply that maybe he goes with them, but you don't actually see that happen. And so Critters 2 opens with Charlie is one of the bounty hunters. He's kind of found his purpose. He's with them and he's on this planet hunting these aliens. Now, what's kind of weird is he's just about as goofy and as haphazard as he was as the town drunk. <laughs> Not a lot seems <laughs> to have changed there. But I think that that initial opening kind of surprised me and, and had me thinking, oh, wait, maybe this is going to be a different kind of movie. Now, I'd seen the trailers where well, they're on Earth, but I was thinking, oh, maybe this will expand and maybe we will get some adventures in space. Heck, Critters 2 could have even featured, I mean, we love those little crites, but they didn't necessarily have to be the main villain again, I don't think. No, there now, could have been something else. So I think that's sort of the disappointment. It seems, it does seem like at first that Mick Garris as his mind on making this a little bit of a bigger movie. And then you do get, and it is a bigger movie, but it's kind of a, one of its problems too, is it it's the whole town now is uh, the crites the are attacking the town in general. And so you get more of a feel of like a tremors where the town is what's hemmed in the survival horror expands. So now you got the town, but I don't think it works quite as well because for me, critters too, I like the movie. I do like it. I, I don't quite connect with it as a horror movie at all. At this point, Critters 2 is much more of horror comedy. I think you could say this is a comedy movie in its essence, but it because even when the Krites attack and when they kill people, it's done in about the most comedic way you could think of. I mean, there's there are some pretty good scenes here. And, and the, what they do with the bounty hunters is fun in the moment. There is a lot of inventiveness, I think, of ideas. The execution feels like it's kind of all over the place. And you do have that food theme where you see the Critters like wrecking a restaurant and things like that. And yet they don't quite ever make a good point of it. Like there's no real substance to the idea that they're just chomping their way through the galaxy. And think that there could be some sort of expose or some sort of uh, underlying theme about what about humans as sort of uh, consumers and we just devour and we tear our way through things, but it's just there to have the Krites like tear up a burger joint, and squirt mustard on the bounty hunters when they come in. It's like, the bounty hunter turning into the plane mate. It's clearly there just to be kind of goofy and have some titillation, you know, uh, no pun intended. But it's it's there and it's funny, but it's not connected to any sort of a theme per se, if that makes sense. This does give us the great line of, you know, what is it? Cheeseburgers, no bones. <laughs> That's a great moment. So, you know, I, they, they go on about how Howard Hawks is a guy that said, uh, you know, a good movie is a movie that has three great scenes and no bad ones. And I think Critters 2 almost gets there. I don't know if it has, yeah. it gets close to having three great scenes. I think the bounty hunter transformation where she becomes, where he becomes the woman is, uh, you know, that's pretty, the bounce of the eighties. Cool. It's yeah. pretty cool. It's pretty <laughs> neat. It plays around with that a little bit more and they do play around with that a lot. Now bringing Eddie Deason into the film, it's funny. Like I'm not a fan. <laughs> 
and, no. and when I hear his voice now, I can only think of the kid from the Polar Express. And my kids are the same way. They're like, oh, it's that kid from the Polar Express. Like, no other human being has that voice. And he's so distracting. And it's kind of a mess because the female bounty hunter turns into him. And now we're watching any decent walk around in that, like, skimpy, torn up clothing. I'm like, please, <laughs> please fix this. Please make this stop. Yeah. Yeah. If we're talking about, I think, what the third grade scene is, I let, is this maybe I'm getting this confused with one, but at the beginning, aren't they talking to like what seems like their boss or some kind of ruler or emperor or something? The bounty hunters, that is. They are. They are. So there's an alien that shows up and it's much more. It design is even more alien than the one that was in the first movie who kind of looked like he looked like a combination between the the elephant playing the keyboard in Jabba's palace and Jabba's <laughs> right hand man. Uh, you know, oh, you mean Max uh, Bib- Rebo? Yeah, yeah, Max Rebo and uh, Bib Fortuna. Like, is a combination of those two guys mixed into one. And uh, yeah, for all the Star Wars people, the, do you just call it an elephant thing? Yes, I did. A blue <laughs> elephant wonky thing. And um, the that character. There's a funny story in the documentary because. You talk about Mick Garris and like, well, Mick Garris, his wife really wanted to be in the movie. And uh, and but he, you know, he didn't want to be kind of a deal where like, oh, it's nepotism. So, you know, I have you in here and you have this big role. And I think the special effects guy says his wife wanted to be in the movie in the worst way. So Mick put her in the movie in the worst way. <laughs> and she actually is that alien emperor thing you're talking about. Like the the one who's who uh, appears in like a like a holograph to tell them that the Krite infestation is still on earth. And it, you know, you can't see anybody who's under there. You can't quite tell the voice is female or male. And uh, he, he talked about like, she was hyperventilating under all that makeup and she was a little mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe not the best thing to do, but yeah. I don't know. That's the thing. I think the main thing with this movie is I was so excited about the possibilities in that opening scene and with, with the new alien and all that stuff. And then it just turns out to, you know, now they're in Grover's Bend, but instead of attacking the farmhouse, you know, they're attacking the whole town. But yeah. I, you know, like we, the Easter egg thing is great. I love that <laughs> that whole thing. That would be my second great scene: is the Easter Bunny being attacked. So the sheriff, the sheriff at the time is not Harv. Now Harv, it's funny because they actually recast Harv. They can't get M- Emmett Walsh back, and it's funny because. The producers were even mentioning um, they were like, no, he's not Harv's brother. He's Harv played by a different played by Barry Corbin. Now, I think what's cool is Barry Corbin steps into this and he gives you even more like the stereotypical Western sheriff <laughs> that you might expect. But I like him a lot. He's a lot of fun, I think, in the movie. I think so, too. But the sheriff that gets killed by the uh, sorry to go back for a minute, but the, the sheriff who gets killed by the Kreitz in the Easter Bunny outfit has one of the weirdest lines I've ever heard in the movie. And I remember to this day where he says something like he can't get the zipper up on the Easter Bunny suit or he doesn't have one. And so he's like, this is going to be great. These kids are going to see the Easter Bunny with Tehachapi hanging out. I have never heard anybody in my life refer to it as a Tehachapi since then. But we watched this movie so many times that the line, that line is embedded. I probably scribbled it into the margins on my math homework in the fourth grade who knows uh, is to hatch be hanging out i but then he he's attacked by the critters which roll right up into the crotch of the suit and the easter bunny bloodied easter bunny falling through the stained glass on easter sunday is is <laughs> that's a great scene yeah and i i like there if we're talking about um the deaths for a minute i really like where the 
you know, the crate ball rolls over the guy. That's the, the third great scene. On. The crate yeah. ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we get it's funny we don't we get a new um Harv in this one, which I think it might be for the better. But you know, we get Lin Shay back, we get Terrence Mann back, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, he's back. Yep. As a Yeah. So we we get about we get a lot of people back. Uh as far as new cast members, though, what do you think of Leanne Curtis's uh, Megan in this movie as the love interest? I guess <laughs> I, I couldn't quite tell what's going on there. Yeah, there's some funny <laughs> things they do there. This is one of the other problems. I think this is a scattershot nature of the movie. And that's what I think holding this one up to the first one shows why the doesn't so much show why this is a bad one, but shows why the first one was so good. And I like her, actually. I like Leanne Curtis as in the film yeah. and I like her what she's doing but her character is not well defined like it's no. kind of they seem to do some things with her here or there it, there's a weird bit too where the guy that wants to date her who's kind of the bully who bullies scott grimes character around a little bit like they don't keep him in that tone like as things start to happen you expect to be the guy who's going to be eaten first or something like that but he kind of like he, he he's an affable guy he's he's willing to help and do his part and he's still trying to kind of win the girl over but not much happens with that either you know it seems like there's an opportunity to have the three of them be a little more interconnected and it just never really happens cuz it seems like there's too much stuff going on yeah there is and there's even that scene at the end where um, I think somebody's like, go on. I think it might be harder. He's like, go on, kiss your girl or something like that. And he goes to kiss her and then Charlie shows up and it just doesn't happen. And it's so weird. Well, what's going on with Charlie and the bounty hunters like that seems like I feel like what we should have in that movie is Charlie shows up and Scott Grimes doesn't even recognize him like that. Scott Grimes thinks he's the other alien, right? Like they don't know yeah. where where Charlie really went to. So I wanted to see Charlie have his stuff together, you know, at least a little bit and show up and be a different guy. He talks about how he's found his purpose out in space with these bounty hunters, but they're still talking monosyllabically to him. <laughs> and he's, he's still kind of a goof up and he reverts to a goof up the minute he gets back on earth. I just would have liked to see him more done with them because the, they have big presence, particularly this bounty hunter who picks the female form but when you really watch the movie, you get you feel like they're in it more than they really are. And they're not developed very well. And that particular character is out of the movie. And I'm like, I liked her. I wanted to see them do more with her. And uh, that's kind of, I think, the problem is the movie's a lot of little gags and a lot of little scenes. And you like these characters again. There's a charming nature of the film. But it sort of just spools out and goes places and you're here, there, everywhere. It's just, there's lots of little things that are like, hey, that was really cool. Oh, I really like that. But it doesn't, unlike the Krites that keep accumulating and their ball gets bigger and bigger, the movie doesn't really pick pick up as it goes along. Like it doesn't, it doesn't form into anything really solid. It's just sort of like it's a fun ride, but it lacks the atmosphere and it lacks the tension and it lacks the charm of the first movie. Yeah, and it's almost like instead of the main course, it should be, you know, the appetizer or the dessert, right? It's like when you're saying that there's so many like good moments in this movie, but it's exactly right when you're saying about the interconnectivity. It's almost like, you know, you think about Hitchcock putting these storyboards together and he needs a writer to come in and connect them. It's almost like we don't have a gradual, you know, maturation of this plot as we go on. It's just... It's just out there. And I think that's my main problem with this movie is one, it's a lot of more of the same. And two, it just there's something feels off about it in the way it's laid out. Yeah. And I think this is one. This is a case where I think 
watching it as a kid is maybe a different experience of watching it as an adult because it definitely doesn't feel like it's knit together well. As a kid, you could sort of breathlessly run from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And Mick Garris is saying they were definitely going for more of a comedic tone with this, which I think is true. Feels almost a little bit more like a circus and it jumps from from this funny thing to that funny thing. But there, there's, a, there's no scene that lets things breathe the way they did in the first movie where you, you get to see that dinner scene, you know, suddenly boom, they're all holed up in the church and you get a quick scene and then you move on to something else. And it does sometimes even feel like there are scenes that are not, not to a coherence point, but in term of a texture point, there feel like there are scenes that are missing that we, that some things aren't exactly fully textured the way we would want them to be when they occur in the film. And I think the critter ball is one of those things that's like, it shows up and it's cool, but we don't quite build up to it enough, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm very conflicted on this one because as we're talking about it, there's like just more and more cool moments in it. And it's just a shame that it couldn't have been, you know, more like I don't know if I want to say more like the first movie, but I think it had the potential to definitely be on that level. It had the potential to actually be better, I think, like like the the pieces were laid out, expand the story. But that's not what sequels did mostly in the 80s. I mean, as a as an 80s sequel to critters it's not bad i think that's the thing i sound like i'm really down on but i do like this movie i'd recommend it i enjoyed watching it again it has enough of the similar pieces to the first movie that i I, i'd be surprised if you watch it and just really like disliked it completely but i could see you thinking you know what i'm about which is what the audiences at the time did because this movie was not a hit i think everyone was like you know i've had enough critters i'm I'm good i'm set (laughs) Yeah, and this one was sadly the last one to get a theatrical release because of the box office return. So yeah, it was direct to video for the critters after this. But Nathan, do you have anything else you want to go over on this one? No, I don't think so. Um, like I say, there's not much else I can think to say about it. the critters. Are cool. I will say this about the ball. Uh, yeah, everyone's like, yeah, we 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 tried to create this illusion where you could see all the individual critters, but really all we just have are these little you know, almost like swatches attached. I'm like, well, nope, in a, in a high-def television, you could definitely tell that's a swatch ball and not a critter ball at some points. But that is a that is a funny idea. And when you watch it roll over the guy, just strip him of his flash is a pretty, pretty good scene. It's pretty good, yep. I'll go ahead and start with my rating since you went first last time. I think on this one, the more we talk about it, I think I'm up to a 6.5 on it. I think it's a fun movie. Um, I think there's a lot of cool stuff. It just doesn't necessarily work as a coherent piece. And again, I think it hits a lot of the same beats again. I'm not going to give a buy recommendation as we're going forward because I already said buy the set. Nathan, what do you what do you think on Critters 2 in closing? I like the movie. It's still it's not as charming as the first movie. It's still but it, it gets by on a lot of the charm that was there. And it is fun. It's never boring. I didn't think so anyway. I give it a 6.5 as well. We're or right in sync on that. And I think here's the thing is it's a fun horror comedy. And as a critter sequel, it does, it does what you'd expect for me. I wanted to see it do more. Yeah. So that is critters too. Um, I have a feeling we're not going to be in sync for very long. Um, let's <laughs> move on to, <laughs> to critters three and, Critters 3 is an interesting movie. They're finally like, let's go ahead and change it up. 
Um, now, this was directed by Christine Peterson and was released in 1991. Everyone will know Christine Peterson from such movies as Deadly Dreams and Redemption, Kickboxer 5, and of course, some erotic thrillers from the 90s. She did Body Chemistry 3, didn't she? I think she did Body Chemistry. She might have. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a if you want to go check out that cover, that's a sight to behold. It's a time um, in my life where I'm pretty chemistry. sure I saw all those movies, but I couldn't tell you <laughs> the difference between the body chemistries of one, two, three or four. <laughs> so, you know, we've got two years in between the first couple sequels. This one had three years and it was put direct to video. So the <laughs> the tagline kind of lays it out. If you you know needed catching up on the first two. First, they destroyed a farm. Then they terrorized a town. Now they're ready to do some real damage. Like they didn't do any damage before. But uh, this synopsis reads, In what appears to be a cross between Critters and the Towering Inferno, the residents of a... I think that's some conjecture there. (laughs) Yeah, that's some editorial... uh... (laughs) (laughs) The residents of a shoddy L.A. apartment block are chased up to the roof by hordes of the eponymous hairy horrors. These usually letterbox does not steer me wrong, but I feel like these are bad. And I have a feeling these are taken from back of the box or something that are just not good. But it's so it says L.A. in this synopsis. I and you have some. I think you had heard something in the document documentary on this. This felt like New York to me from the beginning. That's what they wanted it to be, and I think it's supposed to be, but they also recognize that in some of the scripts, it's like, wow, we're going to box ourselves in if we have to show New York or get out and show, you know, specifically, like, there's this place in New York and that place in New York. The budget just really wasn't there for that. The interesting thing about the documentaries for these two movies is they say right up front that, hey, we when we were able to get the, like, go-ahead to make the movies, and it was like, oh, you not need a lot of money? Go for it. Just make, you know, Bob Shea's like, yeah, yeah, go for it. They get to make Critters 3 and Critters 4 kind of like back to back. And so their feeling is we could save a bunch of money by just getting two different sound stages. We'll make one, we'll shoot one and shoot the other one, but we'll do the production work for all of them at the same time. So we'll plot out where we're going. We'll get screenwriters to write stuff at the same time. And we'll just knock both of these out and we'll know that we're getting them made and we'll have allocated the money for it. So what that does is it does lock them in. It, it causes them to create two films that I think are, uh, structurally inside of a microcosm. And so what happens is, hey, we, a guy specifically references, uh, the I think it was a script writer who references Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan. He's like, we didn't want it to be like, oh, it's in Manhattan. And you get 20 minutes of, you know, five minutes of the critters rolling through the streets of New York. And then it's, that's it. <laughs> yeah. The rest is Vancouver, you know, yeah, that kind exactly. of thing. You know, that makes a lot of sense. But I I mean, essentially what they're doing with this one, and we can talk about a connection between the third and fourth movie later on, but essentially what they're doing here is just wiping the slate clean for the most part, right? We get, uh, I think we get Terrence Mann back in this one for a little bit, and we do get Charlie back, uh, Don Opper in this movie, but everything else, we're kind of starting fresh almost we're going across the country you know from a midwest farm town and we're getting new characters which look let's let's be honest up front critters 3 is not high art right nathan could be high (laughs) no no yeah it's not it's not high art it's not even um it's not even like 
middle art. It's uh... <laughs> yeah. I I mean, we get so the introduction here, and this has a young um, Leonardo DiCaprio in it, and we basically get you know they're stopping off in this um, RV, I believe, at a park, and there's a dad and two kids, and then you know, they bump into Leo at some point and then they all bump into Charlie who is, you know, back on earth with really, I don't think any explanation. He's just almost out there, you know, crazy Ralph in it screaming about this alien threat, crazy Ralph in it. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what we get. And they, you know, the movie really picks up when they, go back to their apartment in LA or wherever it is, this nondescript city. And it's this, you know, if you want to get my attention and I'm going to put my cards on the table, put your sequel in a high rise apartment building, because that always (laughs) seems to make it better for me. I don't know what it is, but always, uh, it always does. It it doesn't always poltergeist three. Okay, it can. It has the uh, <laughs> has the potential. It's going to start you off at a one instead of a zero. Let's say you want me to say something more like Demons Two, right? Yes, Demons Two, or yeah. more recently, Satan Slaves Two. There are a good amount of horror sequels. I feel like set in high rise apartment buildings. But Nathan, give me your initial thoughts on Critters Three. Critters Three is another one that when we rented it in the nineties, like Saturday night, we're all going to sit down and watch it. And we had a blast. That was my memory of it in, in the 90s. Now, keep in mind, this is what, 1991 this movie is released? Yes, yeah, 1991. Yeah, so 91 was around the time when we then all decided, like, I think that's one of those funny phenomena where, and we talked about this when we were doing, I think, 1992, where you had these movies that came out in the 80s that they were reasonable hits, horror hits, and people liked them, and kids got to see them on VHS, and then this period, this long period of like six or seven years goes by. And then suddenly you're getting these sequels to these movies, like four or five years. And now waxwork has a sequel or, you know, and you're Mm -hmm. suddenly the little monsters are all getting sequels because I think in 91, you get ghoulies go to college, right? Ghoulies (laughs) three, you get troll two. So by comparison, critters three looks pretty, pretty sophisticated. (laughs) Now, the thing I think that the Critters 3 has going for it is, is going for it, and also, in my opinion, is also a knock against it, in a sense, is they actually set up some pretty sensible expectations for this. And mm-hmm. I think that the because you had this kind of tight-knit group of people together, so you get a lot of Barry Opera as a producer again, and he's, all the producers are uh, the, a lot of the same people that worked on it the first time. So they have a sort of similar vision. They get Charlie back, right? Don Opera comes back. He doesn't have a lot to do. And I'm a little, I think the movie, the movie's not confused, but they kind of decide to ignore some things. Like he seems like he was put sent. I'm not sure if you can just really become sheriff by catching uh, the, the previous sheriff who just made himself the sheriff, throws yeah. his badge out the window and says, here you go, son. I'm yeah. not sure if that's how it really <laughs> works, but there's this impression that Charlie's like, going to move on to some better things and now and when we pick up with him uh, is he a bounty hunter again at first i wasn't sure if he was uh, like a homeless has, man. <laughs> yeah, he does look like a homeless man but he always kind of looked like a homeless man that's true that's uh, true but 
you know, Ugg had Charlie's face at the end of part two. Is this Ugg? Is it really Charlie? He mentions he's Charlie. They do a lot of effort. Like when they, when they finally get to the apartment complex, the grandparents or the, the, the elderly couple that watch them mm-hmm. are, are, are like making a lot of pains to explain what previously happened. And we even have flashbacks to the other films. So there's a lot of that. But essentially, when the movie gets into the apartment complex, it keeps itself relatively sensible and okay we're gonna have the critters we're gonna have a lot of them we're gonna try to get the critters to be a central focus of the movie and we'll have this group of people in the apartment complex as a deal with them it'll be another siege narrative it'll be very structurally similar to the first movie uh and all that works pretty much well and actually i think the critter designs to get the Kyoto brothers back and that's why i think what helps about this movie like you look at troll look at the look at the difference between john carlo beekler's like creature effects and troll and then look at look at the troll effects in the first troll, and then look at the troll two effects. I mean, troll two is obviously famously like one of the worst movies ever. Same thing with Ghoulies. The, the Ghoulies were no great shakes to begin with, but by three, they're barely puppets, and by four, they're literally just little people in masks. I mean, there's such a come down in the quality of what you even are looking at. You know, they don't even look the same. And I think that's what Critters, the series has going for, is the Critters retain, for the most part, we definitely see the budget constraints and how many Critters there are, but the Critters look pretty good in part three. Yeah. And the acting is, you know, DiCaprio is, this is baby DiCaprio. This is before he, you know, he's he's uh, doing his best Edward Furlong is what we're looking at, I think, at this point in time. Charlie's doing his thing, but he's not in the movie a lot. And the, the characters that are in the apartment complex are fine. The, the stereotypical Italian guy is a little much for me, but you know, everyone yeah, else yeah. is pretty much okay. I think, and there's a charm, enough charm leaks in that I still like this movie. I don't think it's very good. I think the difference is Critters 1 is a send up to an extent of an old 50s monster movie, and Critters 3 is, with the exception of it not being black and white, just about that 1950s monster movie. But I like those sorts of cheeseball monster movies and i like this cheeseball monster movie this is absolutely nothing new and the bounty hunter stuff has been almost completely scrubbed from it to the point that the one thing that was kind of interesting about it when i remember seeing it as a kid is that stuff was missing and you're like where did it go and then credit scenes were not a thing that much back at that time so when the movie's continuing and we're watching Charlie pick his way through this, the, the, the busted up remnants of the apartment. And you're sitting there and you're looking at it and you're thinking, okay, well, what's going on here? And then for them to bring Ugg back in, it's funny because Terrence Mann says, I got a call. And they're like, they're bringing Ugg back. And he's like, oh, great. And they're like, but there's nothing you really need to do. And he's like, oh, but you still <laughs> get paid. And he was like, oh. <laughs> so, and it's fun because you can see Terrence Mann really like, digs this like he he's a he's a legitimate theater guy he doesn't have to do this stuff or be into it but he on the on the the commentaries for both this film and the next one he's like i'm ready to bring ug back heck i'd bring johnny Steele back <laughs> so he he seemed to be all bored for it i don't know why the critters five people didn't pick that up but anyway i i like the movie i don't think it's very good it's a little harder to recommend unless you are really like into the critters movies and you really all you want to see is critters attack more people in an apartment complex yeah i think what did you call this the amityville 92 effect that it had on me i but yeah i think so 
<laughs> but I think that, yeah, so my main problem with this movie, and yeah, there's some weird stuff. Like, we get that dad character, and you send some stuff going on there, but it's really kind of weird and disjointed a little bit, right? Like, how that dad behaves, and... Which dad? Uh, the... Sorry, the dad of the two children, not the yeah. not Leo's dad. But uh, well, he's he's a whole other story. But he's yeah, like an he, evil Mr. Howell from like yeah. the Gilligan's Island. <laughs> he's a caricature. That's the yeah. problem is a lot of these characters are caricatures. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I mean, I think what is it? Annie's character is the better my favorite in this one. And I do like the old couple as well. Um, you know, I don't even mind the woman who seems like she kind of not runs the apartment building, but kind of runs the apartment building and helps out and stuff. She seems like the real handyman, not the like crazy dude that's in the basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think we do. I think that's the best thing is what you said is we do get this kind of tight knit group of they, they feel like neighbors and they feel like the neighbors that you would see in a movie in apartment buildings when yeah. you're actually living in an apartment building. Maybe it was they seem like the characters in a Twilight Zone episode or a yeah. 50s movie. Yeah, yeah, they are caricatures, but they know each other. They're all up at each other's business They're They're all helping each other out. And I like that. And I like the critters, you know, chasing them around this apartment building and being unleashed. What I don't like is it's almost, you know, we get Deus Ex Charlie here who comes and saves the day at some point. And that's where I'm feeling like almost not Don Upper's performance, but the Charlie character is almost a detriment to this movie because he just comes in and kind of goes, they've kind of turned him into Ripley. Right. And it's funny to that's see exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of funny how they see that progression because this is almost, I would call this the aliens of the, uh, because of the first couple movies, oh, he's man. not really, he's <laughs> not really like on, no, I'm not, I'm not saying quality wise. No, um, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. I yeah. Like I'm the first it. couple movies, he's kind of just, I mean, obviously Sigourney Weaver is more competent, but he's kind of getting his feet under him. He doesn't, he's thrown into the situation in three. It's aliens. He's there to, you know, do that stuff. And in four, he's very much seeming like the disconnected, you know, I'm done with this stuff. Ripley character that we get in Alien Three. I I don't know, but that is my biggest problem with it. It's this movie is so campy and it's so weird. Like, there's one point where we get, um, you know, the one woman is hanging in a phone booth trying desperately to reach a phone at one point, and you keep thinking, like, uh, you know, they're trying to swing over to it. Yeah, 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 like, and th they almost ignore that until the very end of the movie where. <laughs> She throws in like a one liner or something, but I kept waiting for, you know, the Kreitz to come up and just that seems like that would be I was like thinking rewatching the film and I couldn't remember what happened to her. Um, and there's almost zero kills like the only people that get killed, are the people that deserve the it, really, people. like, yeah, yeah, bad people. But you're thinking that you'd at least get that scene where she's hanging from that's a that is a that's the one point where you'd have some actual tension is this Kreitz come out and she's hanging like a drumstick right like all of this thing <laughs> swinging back and forth of meat pendulum and they could just jump up and like that would be that'd be a perfect scene and that, that never happens they only play it for the laugh of she can't quite reach the phone you know she's trying to swing over to the phone and uh and characters had so much worse right in the 90s you can't just use a cell phone they got to climb down and get to the pay phone but, <laughs> and then they got to have change right to do it but yeah i mean it's got it, 
all those pieces are there. It's competently made and it's reasonably paced, but it's almost in my mind, it's almost not campy enough in some ways. Cause to me, some of the scenes that really work, like I like watching the, the girl kind of hang and spin over trying to get to the phone because at least there's something happening there. And some of the goofiness with the Krites works as well. I think my favorite scene in Critters 3 that got a pretty big laugh from me is when the one of the I guess it's the the dad, one of the one of the bad parents has uh the bowling is watching bowling on television and you hear it synced up with the girl who picks the trash can up and throws it, knocks the crates down. That's a pretty good scene. That's about a scene that's on the level of the other movies. I don't think the rest are. You're right, Charlie is just an afterthought here. He's just here to it's weird because when you hear them talking about the character, both Barry Opper and Don Opper talking about the character and like realizing that they were, you know, and Don Opper seems a little surprised, like, oh, that this character kind of like meant something to people. And they actually liked this character and they thought he was a strong character. And that's one of the things they liked about the movies. And as a kid, I remember that, too. And, I, and now I'm like, well, why did I think that exactly? Because it's not like I always thought Charlie was more of a central character in both of the first two movies than he really turns out to be. And maybe the reason I think he's more of a central character is because he does come back and he plays. He's the only one that really comes back for for the third, third and fourth movies. But I was also I honestly forgot that he was in so little of it. I yeah. thought that he was around for most of what happened at the apartment complex. And that's actually not true. He kind of comes back in the end. So he's more of a bookend. I think in that regard, he's fine, but he doesn't really add anything. And you're right. These characters aren't going to get themselves out of the situation. He's going to show up and do it for them. Uh, to the extent that he does, you know, accept the Charlie fashion and muck something up somewhere. But um, <laughs> it's it's not great, and it has a lot of limitations, but I think that they make a reasonably fine movie out of what they have to work with. Like, they're, uh, the movie they plan to make was very restricted. The movie they end up making is even more restricted because of the budget and everything that they have to work with. But they do make a movie that feels pretty sensible. Sometimes I think the problem is it's just too sensible. Uh, if there had never been another Critters movie, if I had just watched this as a low-budget monster movie with zero expectations, I'd be like, hey, this is this is not bad. This is fun, and it's got the, the, the kind of... Um, hokey camp of a 50s movie you know i like that about it you put this thing in black and white and you've you've got a you know it's a pretty decent movie it's just as a critters seek i think the problem is the critters only have they're a great initial idea in a film but they don't have a lot of places you can go with them and this movie doesn't really try to go many places with them it does give you more critters but they're just doing all the same things you saw them do before yeah and i think where my main problem with this other than Charlie is like it. Well, I guess Charlie connects to this is I just wanted to see what's going to happen. I would rather them in that second half of this movie, you know, some of the characters die, you know, but they've got to figure out how to stop these crites with what they have. And it's probably not going to be much, you know, you, you pick up a butcher's knife or you, you know, get them with a fire extinguisher and set them on fire. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't. Well, it's the alien something. three. You talk about alien three. That's what alien three is, right? It's like, yeah. You you mentioned aliens, but I think this really is still alien. It is Alien Three because you take away the guns, you take away everything else. She's trapped That's on that true. prison yeah. planet in Alien Three, and they've got to fight this alien. You know, we've seen them fight a giant ball of crates. So how are five or six critters going to be that big of a deal compared to the things they fought in the other two movies? You can't go bigger. You have to make it more. You have to change the stakes a little bit. And so I think that's what's happening with Part Three. Yeah, I I don't know. You you reminded me of that 
with the uh, dad of the, you know, the two children and the TV goes out and he <laughs> was yes for the portable, the portable TV. And that uh, that took me back for a little bit for, you know, portable TVs. That was a that was a thing right. there for a minute. Well, uh, let's talk about that dad character we just meant because you mentioned yeah. you thought it was kind of weird. Thought someone was up with him. This is what I've I think you've probably heard me rant about this. I've ranted about it on Phantom Galaxy all the time. Bill's heard me say it millions of times. One of my biggest gripes about this period in the 80s and the 90s is the way that movies and they still do to some extent, but really bad back then, the way they treat dads like right. There's a dad in a movie, particularly if there's not a mom. The dad is never going to understand the kid. He's never going to be doing what's right. And and that was happening in mainstream big budget movies when it pours down to a to a smaller movie like this. It's trying to ape the bigger budget movies. Mm-hmm. You get this, which is almost inexplicable. You're like, what are you doing, dad? Yeah, and there's no real growth. I mean, yes, he might redeem himself at the end, but it's not really earned from what they give him. They just no. Kinda... It's just they have to put it in there. They have exactly. to do it. Nobody they have to have the redemption arc. No one fe- feels organic. This all feels like script beats, and I think that's what you get when you have someone who there were people making whole careers, and the script writer mentions this that like they have people making whole careers out of I need to generate a sequel to a movie that was once popular. Yeah, <laughs> and some of these guys did that. Uh, time and time again you know i'm gonna write a puppet master four and i'm gonna write a you know a critters three and stuff like that there was a there's one director out there he he bragged about how he had worked on a like a sequel for every horror movie of a of a low budget nature you know from like a part one to a part five and they were all different movies you know well it's funny Uh, because you're you're almost damned if you do damned if you don't with these things because if you try to do your own movie and do your own thing the fans are going to be mad at you. But if you're doing the same thing, then people are going to get you for like, you're just doing the same thing over and over. So, so what is it about this one that really works for you? Cause I think it, it seems like you actually really like it. I, I don't personally, I do. but I, I do really like it. it's just like, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, I think the cast is fun, how they're a tight knit family and how they're kind of quirky and, weird i liked the annie character for some reason i don't know i liked leo's character too and there's not a lot of depth to any of them really he's fine he's a little kid he's he's not in it as much either as i thought that he was you know no but i kind of like that and i like some of the scenario yeah it's the bad people getting what they what's coming to them and i kind of like the way they do you know off those people other than that, I don't know. It's just some kind of feeling of like charm or camp to this movie that I can't explain. I think it seriously is the Amityville 92 effect because I can't explain why I really like that movie either. But yeah, it's just I think it's mainly just the cast of characters and just having the crates back in this apartment setting. I like maybe it's I like the idea of it more than what we actually got. But um, I think it's still a fun movie for me. No, I think that's fair. I, I do think it's still fun. I just think that it's fun. At the same level that I would watch a legitimately not very good 1950 schlock movie, you know. Exactly. That's my I found that that is my time. The early 90s. That's my, you know, 50s creature features for you. (laughs) That's the. Yeah, that's the time where I, I usually gravitate even to some not as good movies. So. Yep, that's just that's just my thoughts on Critters 3. But, uh, Nathan, anything else you want before we wrap this one up no i guess you know for spoiler purposes i guess we have to do mention that the end of this does bring ug back they and it's actually kind of it's seemingly this is definitely more alien like this is where the 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 
series really just starts to unapologetically rip off aliens, right? Yeah. Like so at this but the interesting point, the interesting thing to think about though is this movie comes out in ninety one. I don't think Alien Three that introduces a lot of the plot lines that we see in these movies doesn't come out until nineteen ninety two, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. We the summer of ninety two episode, yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting is I feel like the plot through line for this movie and the next one very much dovetail in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways with Alien 3. But I'm not certain that Alien, I got to look at the time frames. I don't know if they'd have been able to see Alien 3 by the time that the script is being produced and the movie's being made, you know? Yeah. Um. So I think that's what's interesting. But at the end of this movie, has he's about to destroy what he believes to be the last two or three Krite eggs in existence. And then he suddenly stopped by Ugg, who the Intergalactic Council or whatever is saying, you know what, these are the last ones. We don't have any right to exterminate a species. We got to take the eggs back in. And it's like suddenly like, boom, okay, well, we guess he still is a bounty hunter, right? Like when the alarm goes off, it alerts him that he is bounty hunter. He's got his own number and everything. And so that's a little confusing. You're like, well, why were you hanging out like a hobo in the woods? But uh, then they get to go back and the last thing I think we see is Ugg is saying, hey, we're going to send a transport vessel and it starts to like break through the roof. And I think that's about the end of the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. It. Um. This is where we definitely get a connection between what's going to happen with the third and fourth movies. It's just putting that scene in there where, you know, we get that and then, you know, Charlie wakes up in back in space and um, some time has passed, but not to get into what they're doing before, but you can tell that they had the fourth segment in mind. Like you said, they were shooting them back to back. You could tell they had that in mind when they were putting together the ending part for this one. And it was actually kind of fun. I admit that back in like 91 or whenever I saw this movie, it was fun to have that sort of thing happen. And, and, and this idea, Oh, there's a, there's another one on the way and it's actually coming relatively soon. And I'm going to get to see this. It's going to take them actually into space, which as you and I have talked about is where I think we wanted the series to go after yes. the first movie. But of course my, my hopes aren't up much at this point because I know that this movie is, you know, budget wise, these movies have been greatly reduced from where they were, you know, when they probably could have got a budget to do that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. All right, Nathan, sounds like we're going to segue over to four. So what are your ratings on this one? I am lower on this one. I, I, I'm coming in at a 5.5. 5. Uh, to me, it's still a recommendation for people who like the Critters movies. If you like those characters and you want to see them in a movie, that's relatively, it's, it's a pretty decently put together movie. I like watching it, but I have to admit, I don't think this is a good one. I don't, I, I think that the other, the first two movies are much better than this one. This is a whole nother step down for me personally. Um, I do, I, I, I like watching it, but I'm not drawn in necessarily by any of the characters. I like the critters, but I think that everything that they do in this movie, I saw them do in a previous movie better. Uh, and production wise, it just isn't at the same level, which I get, but I, I think that it's easy to admire it for wanting to make a sequel, trying to do it in a sensible way, making sure all the pieces are there and, creating a movie that is fun to watch. I like get it, it, but it's just a little bit more of what we've already had. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I'm not going to call this a good movie. 
but I'm about a point higher at a 6.5 on this one. And I don't know. Like we said, I don't know how to describe why I like this, why I'm drawn to it. But I I think it just goes back to those characters in the setting. And yeah, it didn't reach the potential of what I thought it could. Even, even you know, my expectations going into this, Nathan, I knew there was a stigma around like after we get past two, these movies drop off. So I had very low expectations going into these things. And I think, you know, they were met for what I was expecting from this part three. So I enjoyed it. This is probably I would probably put this one above slightly above two for me. But. Yeah, I there's still many issues I have with this one. And it's fine. I I think the thing is, is you look at the level at which it's made, the budget it's made for and uh, audience and everything like that. I think that you have to look at it and say. You know what, it, it, it does what it sets out to do. It does it. It does it fine as a as a kind of C-level direct video movie. I think it's a lot better than many of the same ones that came out. I had fun watching it. I still had fun watching it this last time through. I like it. It's a recommendation for me. It's just a very, it's a little bit of a wavy hand recommendation. I don't know that if you, if you felt like you were done at the end of Critters 2, you know, Critters 3 might not be your thing. But again, yeah, I think though for buying the set, this movie still has appeal. You will, you probably will enjoy it. And if you are a, if you're a like, horror fanatic and you watch everything then you've seen movies much much worse than critters 3 and i think it's amazing it's amazing that critters 3 and critters 4 to some extent are um are as good as they are in a sense that that they do they don't completely uh, jump the shark and they don't completely go off the rails they they don't do a lot new but they try to they try to have some structural integrity to the series which is admirable i think yeah. And listen, I'm going to say right out of the bat, I think you could do a lot worse than the series, than the Critter series. I think they're. Yeah, now, now that's a different story. Maybe we can get into the last entry, but I think there are series that are a lot worse than what these ones do, especially for how low budget three and four. Are. I'd say all the Critters movies that that even when we get to five, which I, you know, we'll get to there in a minute. I mean, I don't think any of these are unwatchable. And I no. think particularly the biggest problem that Curtis three and four have is that they just aren't even though four is set in space that they, the, some of the sci-fi ideas just aren't explored to the degree I'd want them to be. You have this weird little universe and we're kind of just down to people get people being chased by killer, uh, killer balls of fur. Right. All right. But let's go on to part four here. And this one came out a year later in 92 and directed by Rupert Harvey, who directed Critters 4 and only Critters 4. But he had worked on all, he had he had worked closely uh, in the documentary. They, I think he was the guy that was trying to get these movies made along with Barry Opper. And so he was, he had been, he'd been in the picture all this time. And he was finally getting, so for him, it was a big deal. He's finally get to be the guy who was actually directing the movie. And he had been producing it to this point. And the Keanu brothers say, what was funny is when he was a producer, all these things that he wanted to do because they knew they were going to get to make Critters 4. They had already disagreed on a script and they were spending all the money up front. When he became a director, he was a little bit disappointed because the script had changed. And now they want all these things. And the Keanu Brothers like, nope, we already made the stuff for this movie. We got no <laughs> money left to make baby Critters or whatever it is you want. Yeah, but I don't 
see, that's the problem is I don't think and I'll set this one up first, but I don't think that's what the movie necessarily suffers. I think there's other areas that the budget caused it to suffer, too. The tagline for this one, Nathan, this goes back to what you're saying at this point. In space, they love to hear you scream. So we're full on alien. <laughs> alien at this yeah, point. we're not trying too hard at this point. <laughs> no. Uh, synopsis reads, let's see if this is any better. Just before bounty hunter Charlie triggers his gun to destroy the last two critter eggs, he gets a message that it would be illegal to extinguish the race from the galaxy. He sent a transporter where he puts the eggs. Unfortunately, the transporter takes him with it, and then he gets lost in space. That's ter- That's like the just the opening. That's like the script opening. <laughs> that's nothing. That's true. It's like the uh, the the hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what we what we've got here is Charlie does get sucked in with these eggs, and he kind of wakes up. It's like fifty years later. We find out, but but it's really only it's only forty minutes of film time. Still yes. a lot in a yes. critters movie. <laughs> yeah. But the main um, cast of this is the crew of a ship, and they're going to salvage stuff. Very weird. Never seen that before. (laughs) They're they're going to salvage stuff, and they pick up uh, this container, which they don't know what's in it. And they're basically told by this seems like some kind of galactic bureaucracy or something like that, that to take it to the station. Well, they get to the station, and the station is seemingly empty and i think that's the coolest part of this movie for me there's a lot of potential loss because like you said we wanted this in space we finally get a full movie in space it's set on an abandoned space station with not very many aliens or characters or anything like that i think it's cool when you first get in there and you know the ai is kind of busted and they're trying to figure out what happened here and you know what from a high level i I think it has a pretty decent cast, too. I mean, we've got Brad Dorff. We've got Angela Bassett. We have, you know, Leo Johnson himself <laughs> in this movie. I, I think and he is kind of like Leo Johnson, just in yeah, space. Yeah, he's maybe a little nicer than Leo Johnson. But <laughs> that's true. And for people who don't know that, he, you know, this actor is a character on Twin Peaks and has only been a year or two off from Twin Peaks, really. Yeah. So he was at the height of his career doing Critters. Four. Yeah, Critters four. Uh, <laughs> but what are your what are your thoughts on this one, Nathan? Well, let's not forget the great Anders Hove from the subspecies movies. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Playing like space sleaze, basically. Uh, he's the other member of this crew, and he's like the captain that nobody can stand. Uh, I think um, Dorf calls him, oh, you mean Captain Asshole or whatever yeah, he calls exactly. him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that the, the actually the cast does help the movie a bit because mm-hmm. uh, you do ultimately have Don Opper and uh, Terrence Mann returning. I think given what the movie does, you know, how much does that really matter in the scheme of things now? But that that cast of characters that make up the ship, uh, you are getting uh, Brad Dourif, who's, you know, Brad Dourif is not phoning it in. He's doing what Brad Dourif always does. He's he's there to work. No, I like his character. In that. Yeah, yeah. I, I do, too. And it's nice to see him in a in a role where he is absolutely not a psychopath. <laughs> he's a he's a, yeah, exactly. a normal, likable guy. Um, he's a little bit of the brain, but, you know, it, and he, he's kind of sarcastic. I like that. Angela Bassett. I, I this is one of her definitely her earlier movies. Was this her first movie? I mean. If it wasn't her first, it was very early on. Close, yeah. Um, but it's gonna it's gonna be right at the 
I think it's right uh, at the cusp of when she starts to, you know, make a make a splash because I think when this movie is actually released, I don't know what the actual date is on it, the the VHS, but it was made in ninety two. I think it might have actually been released in ninety three, uh, or at the end of ninety two. So in ninety three, summer of ninety three, she's got what's love got to do with it coming out. So you know she's right at the precipice and she's very good too so i mean and anders hove is you know he's he's fine too he's fun as this like creepy space captain i think everybody here is kind of uh doing their thing well enough yeah and there's the weird thing i think here nathan is you get terrence mann as ugh who's just a completely different character with pretty much no explanation except for things change, right? Which was because you do get a little bit of play between him and Charlie and what's going on with that. And it seems like Charlie's back to being his incompetent self, right? Getting himself stuck in, you know, that suddenly he's like Ash from the evil dead or something. Yeah. Like that original ending of army of darkness where he gets stuck and he wakes up like centuries later, but it goes back to the Ripley arc that you're talking about, because what it does is it gives, a moment um and this is where like the the leo johnson guys really like your your friend all your friends and family are toast done finito (laughs) he just keeps coming up with new words and nobody stops them they're just nodding their heads sadly and there's like sad music charlie's realizing everybody knows has been dead for 50 years uh the thing about that though is that again it is very much the arc right of of aliens and but, but again it's weird because this is this is coming out in 92. This is coming out at this point when it's actually released on VHS. I think it is after Alien 3. But a lot of what happens, this movie is similar to Alien 4. Exactly. That's what you I know? was thinking, yeah. <laughs> and so they have that. But I, I think what's weird is I remembered that, like, as I was watching this, there seems, Ugg shows up again. Now, a couple things don't make sense. Is uh, It seems to be established that the bounty hunters have to see the image of the thing that they used to be again in order to turn into it right yeah yeah so there's no and, and there's no good reason that ugg would continue to look like johnny Steele, other than yeah i know i get it they want to bring terrence Mann back but you know there's no good reason that ugg would still look like johnny Steele. and particularly there's 50 years have gone by so why does ugg look at basically exactly the way he used to look yeah and so there's this point in time where i'm like is this really ugg or is it because this i guess spoilers for alien 3 you know, Alien 3 ends almost the same way. A friendly face shows up to preserve the alien and they aren't, you know, they're they're questionable. They're they're not a good guy anymore. They're a bad guy. Uh that's a Lance Henriksen. He but he's not Bishop, right? He's the he's the face that Bishop was modeled after. And I thought we were gonna get something similar here where this isn't really Ugg. Fifty years have gone by. This is maybe Ugg's ancestor or something like that. Yeah. Again, why would he look like Johnny Steele? I don't know. What makes even less sense, though, is how it all goes down. I guess, you know, the plot is they're going to come and get these eggs. That should be a really routine thing, right? It's not even like they don't want to give them the eggs, per se. Like, yeah, I, 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 unless I missed it, there's no point where the, the people in the ship are like what you see in other stories where this thing is dangerous. We can't let it get out. What Ripley thinks, right? Like Ripley is like, we cannot give this to the company. It doesn't seem like they'd really have a problem. What happens is like Brad Dourif smarts off and he gets shot. And then suddenly, yeah. like why Ugg behaves the way he does makes, makes no sense. No sense. Makes he no should sense. totally come in, be Charlie's friend. Give me the eggs, Charlie. I'll take care of him. 
I'm so sorry you've been out here for so long. It's easy. It's easy. He he creates every problem he has at the end of this movie. <laughs> who no, this is the worst thing about this movie is this bit where Ugg is the bad guy makes no sense. It's like they just want him to be the bad guy. If that was the case, they needed to write it better. I'm not that invested in this character, but I just did not understand the end of this movie. No, and there's a lot of things that don't make sense. Like you said, why would, and I, I love the idea of this, you know, space bureaucracy and they're here to give these, you know, what they find. They don't know what they found. They just know they found something valuable and has a symbol on it from this certain faction. Why would they send them to this abandoned space station with no life support systems and then take forever to get there? And then when they do, they send in like the cavalry, right? They send in like the, the guys with guns that are there to well, make Well, and Ugg should know, if this is the same Ugg, he should know it's a Kreitz. The weird thing about this is even if you have that things change, sometimes things change, change Charlie. Well, he knows the guy's name's Charlie, but there's no line or interaction of dialogue that I can tell that was written into this script that absolutely underlines that this is the same guy that Charlie used to know. They don't even, you know, they sue flashbacks to underline everything else. It's like they want, and they even mentioned, well, we kind of wanted to leave it open that maybe this wasn't the right, the real UG. Maybe it was a clone. And it's like, well, you got to do a little bit better than that. But yeah, um, there's a funny, there's a little interesting bit on the documentary where uh, Terrence Mann is talking about this and he was, he's into it. He's like, yeah, let's bring another one back where a good UG and a bad UG fight each other. It's like, but he said that he thought that Don Opper, the, thing, the only thing he really remembers about this was Don Opper acting, that when he comes out, the look, the crestfallen look on Charlie's face as he's doing this scene, it's like when it kind of came together, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm the bad guy. And he looks so downtrodden <laughs> that it affected him, and he remembered that, that it was like, I just remember the look on his face. And I was like, wait, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. Well, that's good. I mean, not get bad, but yeah. Oh, man, that's. I don't know. This we, movie's boring. It's so boring. I mean, other, you know, you get an Angela Bassett shower scene where she, that's a pretty funny scene too, with the yes, captain yeah. coming in there. But it's so boring, Nathan. It has such good potential. And I think this is a lot of the thing where we finally get it in space and it's set on this abandoned ship. I think they just didn't have money to do anything else, right? No, we haven't had didn't. an alien since they were doing theatrical releases in one and two. And I think it's sorely missing that. I mean, I think aren't all the people that they interact with just seemingly humanoid in this movie? That's the problem. The the universe that you get introduced to in Critters is very much a Star Wars style space opera universe. But the universe of, of Critters 4 is that realistic humans just trucking away at blue collar grime jobs in space world of alien and dark star and things like that, you know, and that's the world. That's just not a very interesting world. And we were getting a lot of it. Honestly, you know, I think you and I talked about, it. I was tired of the grime by the time alien three came along. So these kind of sci-fi is drudgery. It's not what I wanted to see. Uh, the critters are not in the movie very much. So there's very little Charlie. He doesn't show up till about 40 minutes in. The critters are are very scarcely used in this. They still look fine, but there's not a lot done with them. Even the Kyoto brothers acknowledge, hey, there wasn't a lot we could really do. We were pretty yeah. limited. They even say it's like critters light in terms of the amount of critters and crites that you get in the film. So they don't do a lot. They're not very interesting. That set is neat. They, they were saying that the scriptwriter was saying 
that he and Barry Opera that they tried to talk New Line since they had built that set into allowing them to do a Roger Corman guerrilla style, give us about a week and a half and film like a haunted spaceship movie there, uh, which probably would have been better than this. This movie's not terrible. It's watchable mostly because of the cast and because it's put together well, just like the last movie. I do like Critters 3 better than this movie because at least there's things going on in Critters 3. This is feels like you're waiting around a lot for things to happen and what happens doesn't make sense. And it does... It, it does start to get a little bit on the boring side. I'm sitting there waiting for something to transpire. It's, it's well made enough, again, for a low budget. It's modest and it's not terrible. Uh, there's still a certain charm to it, but it's, it's, it's very... If this didn't have that cast interacting the way they are, I don't think I'd been able to get through it. No. No, and that's the thing that saves it is the cast because it is so boring, but... This is where I was glad that I split up one and two and three and four because I think it helped with my enjoyment not watching them all in a marathon session like you Oh, did. yeah. I was getting serious critter fatigue by the point I got to this movie. But I think the problem is, again, now what I'm watching is I'm watching an a, a, a bad alien clone. I'm not mm-hmm. watching a Critters movie. Exactly. Uh, critters is a concept and is a, is, a, is a franchise. can be fun, but this isn't isn't that quite you know it's still it's still got enough of the earmarks like i say i was not i do remember specifically being disappointed when i saw this one back then but i didn't walk out of it thinking i'd seen a bad movie i just these movies were a dime a dozen back then yeah absolutely but uh, you know Nathan, i don't have a whole lot more to say on critters four what do you got well uh, i got nothing okay <laughs> let's move in then i'll give my rating first on this one uh with this one, it's like you said, it's not a bad movie. There's some good points. I really like the cast. I think I'm going to settle in around a five on this one. I'm the same. And it's a five. It's a that, it's yeah. a middle of the road movie. It's um, but I think as a critter, it's funny because we talked about what the first critters was horror and comedy and some Western vibes. That epic Western feels completely gone. It's movies not scary in the least. It's not funny in the least. So <laughs> those three genres are sort of gone. Yeah, it, it's no longer a Critters movie, really. It's just it's yeah. just not. So uh, it's a well, grimy spaceship movie or space it, station movie. It is. It's a very much like a. It's the feeling. That's what I always call like the you know the space marine. When you get a space marine, you know you're not in for something fantastical. You're in for some. Uh, marine type dudes in space yeah doing their thing so that's this type of movie but uh, yeah let's unfortunately it's not going to get any better for us nathan so let's launch it's true let's launch into critters attack so this came out all the way in 2019 so 92 was the last one this was you know we're in this phase of the revival sequel you know the legacy sequels and uh, Critters Attack is directed by Bobby Miller, who hasn't really done anything I've heard of. And the tagline here, still going back to the food, with everyone is on the menu. The synopsis reads, follows 20-year-old Drea, who reluctantly takes a job babysitting for a professor of a college she hopes to attend. Struggling to entertain the professor's children, Trissy and Jake, along with her own little brother Philip, Drea takes them on a hike unaware that mysterious alien critters have crash-landed and started devouring 
everything they encounter. So that's definitely a much more wordy synopsis than we've got. I think it's more accurate. I'm a little I always get a little annoyed when they start mentioning every character's name in a synopsis, but uh, that's not the most annoying thing about this movie. So the only thing and this is the weirdest thing. The only character we get that returns is D Wallace. And it's not the same D Wallace we saw in Critters. This is extremely weird. It's almost yeah. what like, you mean is the only actor that returns is D Wallace and they don't really. Sufficiently, yes, it could be the yes. same character, but there'd be a certain amount of I don't need to be spoon fed, but there'd be some narrative discussions that need to take place. that Don't take place in this movie for any of this to make sense. None of it makes sense. It's almost like they're trying to do the um, Halloween 2018, you know, TCM 2022 thing with this character, but it's a different named character. And there's no reason why she's here. It's so bad. This movie is not great. I'm just going to lay it out there. I didn't mind the first part of this movie. I think it's fine as a film. It's nothing great. The dialogue's okay. The acting's fine. It's not outstanding. I mean, really, the the best thing about this is probably the critters. I I don't know where to start with this, Nathan. What do you, what do you want to talk about with Critters Attack? What I think is weird about this, because D. Wallace has come back and D. Wallace seems to be kind of enthused about it. And everyone's talking about how these, you know, the guys that made this movie really loved the critters growing up and they wanted to make this movie. And that does come through in the critters themselves, the way they're made. And honestly speaking, so there was a there was like a like a like webisodes of a critters like web series. And that thing was awful. So coming from that where I saw some of those, I'm like, wow, oh, this is, I mean, my personal opinion, this is garbage. Critters <laughs> attacks. looks like, you know, citizen Kane in comparison, uh, in the sense that, okay, it's got a basic idea of small town attacked by critters tries to keep some of the comedy in. Uh, also though, is trying to, you know, scratch off things. It's going to do again, like the giant critter ball. We're bringing D Wallace back. You've got, a little bit of the bounty hunter element. And then of course the other thing they want to do is sort of really go full gremlins here and have a good gremlin, a female, a good critter, a female fright that uh, looks like has big eyelashes. Reminds me that gremlin from gremlins too. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, (laughs) but it's kind of like, again, this is when we go back to the night skies. It's like, this is a totally different creature and it's a good one. And it's going to help them fight the bad ones. But there's not a lot of explanation. The problem is this movie really feels very half-assed. Yeah. Like I try to be as gracious as I can when we get to these sorts of movies. And it's really cool when someone can get out there and make a movie when they really love these older movies and want to make like their homage to these films or their, their contribution to these series. Um, but it's just some of the inex- things that feel inexplicable about this because overall the tone of it's not bad. Um, it's not excessively poorly made. It's very low budget. It does feel almost like a sci-fi original. It really feels, I think the the tone and texture of the filmmaking feel a lot like that last Leprechaun movie they made. The one that where Warwick Davis didn't come back, but it tried to tie itself very explicitly to the first movie. Now, ultimately I think that movie was a little bit better than this one because this one's kind of just all over the place. I, I, I think tonally and there, it just doesn't have much of it. It doesn't have a very cinematic identity. It feels very cheap. 
And it's not just the production values. It's the filmmaking itself. It's like the people that made the critters were on point. And the scene where they have to fight the critters on like a football field and hit it, they they just revels in the fact that we're just flinging like moppets at people. You know, when I was a kid, when the first critters movie came out, one of the genius things was there was a toy that was out around the same time. This was the, the era of like Cabbage Patch Kids. So it was like, what other kind of wild toy can we make? And they had things. I remember there's something called a nosy bear. You squeezed it and like stuff swirled around in the nose. That's just weird. Sounds about right. Yeah. But there was a thing called a popple. Are you familiar with that? I don't think so. The popple was like a toy. It was like a stuffed animal, but you could take its legs and its face and its arms and shove them all inside of like a pouch and it would just <laughs> become a ball. And so I distinctly remember we had one and after critters, we threw it at my siblings and my wife has memories of her aunt actually hiding behind the couch after they'd seen critters and throwing the popple. So that's what this looks like. They're just throwing these things in the air and you see them cutting them in half. But again, on the up close scenes where they're attacking, it looks pretty detailed and pretty cool. This is a rated R movie, but it's definitely no stronger than critters two was in my opinion. No two is Um, the one that deserves an R in the franchise. And this one does not, I don't think. No, but the, but the, the attack scenes, they smack of a certain amount of cheapness. And again, I'm not just talking about the budget. I'm talking about the effort that goes into this, the filmmaking ability. Yeah. And uh, like, even at this point, a TV movie quality, I think would be fine, but it's script writing. The, the characters are completely flat. None of them are interesting, including, and here's a, here's a level of what I mean. half ass. D Wallace comes to this movie. She comes in, she's been following the Krite sort of all through the film, and it could very much be a Charlie situation. You need one, two lines of dialogue at best that explain who or what she is. The bounty hunter element has been completely leached from this movie until the end when Dee Wallace tells somebody that she's a bounty hunter. But unless you've watched the other films that you know that she's from, that potentially she's from space, but she doesn't say or do anything that that would reveal that she's from space. We only think maybe she's a shape-shifting bounty hunter because we already know that. The so movie is just that lazy about it. And she turns and says, you call me Aunt D." Like, she literally just <laughs> called me D. Like, that was not her character's name in the first movie. No. That, it's not a bounty hunter character that we know of. So just the level, that level was very, very surprisingly shoddy to me of just the the, trying to have character interactions at the same time, trying to build some pathos that just isn't earned. I I had the same problem with the leprechaun movie where, you know, at the end of the leprechaun first movie, like after they defeat a leprechaun, uh, Jennifer Aniston is like making jokes about, Hey, let's go out and get some fries and a burger or something. And then, you know, the beginning of the uh, new movie, she was in a mental hospital and died there. (laughs) <laughs> for for the traumatic things that happen i guess it kicked in later right requires some hoops to jump through right it does it does but by my point is that movie tried to have some pathos this isn't related in that way but you've got the the girl whose parents are dead and she's broken up about this or and you know she's got this relationship with her uncle but these relationships make no sense so there's a scene where she comes to tell the uncle who's clearly a drunk and i know there were drunks in the other movies but this guy shouldn't be around a sheriff's office period no and or children, for that matter. Or children, anybody. And he comes in, and she's got this alien that's with her, and she's like, just let me show you. He's getting calls that people are disappearing in his town, and he's like, I got better things to do, which is drink out of the flask on his desk. Like, this makes no sense. Like, it takes five seconds to let the niece that is up until this point, been a perfectly trustworthy source of information, 
to show you the alien she says she has in her. I would be in. I would. I don't think I could be drunk enough not to be interested in that. <laughs> yeah, I don't care what it is. I mean, at least let her open the bag and share. But yeah, I mean, she is. You know, she works constantly. She is just trying to get in. She's smart just, enough to go to college. She just trying to get a different school. She's not like some untrustworthy character. It's lazy and senseless. It's like the uh, every time they do something sort of cool, they shoot themselves in the foot by either like forgetting about it or like just pushing it under the rug purposefully. There's a there's a setup early on where you've got this guy who runs a Chinese restaurant and he's got uh you know, a delivery boy who works for him that is his, his nephew, I believe. And this is all leading to this point where this guy's going to realize that his nephew has been killed by the Krites and he's a sushi chef. So he's going to pick up his sushi knives and go out and fight these things. And that would have been a major scene in any of the older movies. I think of the old lady cutting the critter in half in part three with that big butcher knife she had, you know, or, or any of the scenes like that that show up in the movies. Uh, when Harv comes back and he's got his six shooters out and he's firing at the Krites. like, But the scene seems like it's going to be cool, but it's shot very incoherently. And then that character, as soon as he, he makes his big stand, he disappears from the movie and he's been a very, he's been a pretty pivotal part for the, the 50 minutes to come before it. And they've got his vehicle, so we don't ever know what happens to that guy. There's a yeah. big deal made about them trying to find a guy who has a bagpipes. And I'm thinking, is this going to be a way to defeat the Christ? <laughs> My kids are like, this is what's going to happen, Dad. And I was like, nope, that was a throwaway nothing. Like It's like somebody was writing the script, then they they were fired or had to leave, and someone else picked it up, but they didn't have any notes to go on. So they just yeah. wrote from where they were. It's like a bad game of telephone. Well, it's like, and am I wrong, but... Was there any other explanation on that chef character other than they mention his name and then they show him like once or did I miss something? Because I'm thinking like they didn't really explain that character either at all. I mean, I don't know if he needs a lot of explanation. He's like a no. sushi chef, but we don't. But what's his relationship? Like what's the... with the kids? Why they just yeah. go to him? Like, yeah, the source. there's yeah, that, that's the problem. There isn't any connective tissue. This movie is all just the. They needed people with more filmmaking expertise to be involved in the movie. I I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. The people that made this movie don't seem to know a lot about making movies. But I mean, that being said, now my kids actually enjoyed this, I think, because the critter attacks were there. They were mostly on point. There's still a general sense of fun. And the critters do look good. And they hadn't watched any of the older ones in a long. I think they'd seen the first one with me a year or so ago. So this was relatively fresh to them. And, you know, my, my daughter was like, this is enjoyable, but I think it's, you know, <laughs> it plays about like a sci-fi channel movie. It's a little bit better than some of those giant snake and whatever movies. I think the problem is, is when you start to try to examine it and accept it as a movie, as opposed to just sort of a time filler, you know, like when you're looking at it as, Oh, this disposable entertainment, that's great. Again, it's a case of they had, they had an opportunity to do something better and it just seems like they drop the ball at almost every point. I don't hate the movie. I just look at it. And, I, and in fact, the problem is there are things I like about it. It gets the general tone right. D. Wallace showing up with her weapon in the middle of the battle is cool. You just wish that because those pieces are there, you'd want to see it coalesce more. And it, I think there's just a sliding scale. All the Critters movies are like that. There's a general sense of you have me. This is my kind of thing. I like this. I want, I'm here. I'm here for this. I want to like it. And starting with Critters 2, and that's a slow slide to where you get the Critters attack where, you know what? You lost me. Yeah. 
And I'll tell you, you're saying sci-fi movie. So actually, interestingly enough, sci-fi bought the rights to this in 2018. And they were the ones that put together this. And I'm assuming they put together a new binge as well. The TV show you were talking about. Um, So yeah, it was absolutely a sci-fi thing. And the problem is, is there's some decent scenes in this. I liked the scene where um, she's trying to relate to the kids she's babysitting and just completely striking out. Cause I feel like that's how I would be too in this situation now. Um, and like you said, the scene at the end in the football field is it's laughable for sure, but there's some funny moments there too. It's just such a shame that this is what we got from revival. And I, I don't know what else to say about this one. I think you've covered a lot of it, but it's just a disappointment. Yeah, there's not much else I can say. I think the be- the thing that they got right was the critters. That that's the thing about this entire series is that the critters, the way they look and the way they behave and everything, they've kept they've been able to keep that pretty much on point. I'm not a fan of this new critter, but whatever. That's a clearly a gremlin. Yeah, throwaway. But to me, the 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 older critter movies and a gremlins film, as Gremlins two did, you know, a lot of people hate that movie. I personally, I like it they would have used that concept to poke some fun at themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't, they take that just straight away. They call it Bianca or something. And there's no, there's no irony that this thing is there and it's meant to be a cute little thing to sell toys or I don't know, not toys, but what's the purpose of it? It's just a, it, what it is is to reflect and make us remember a time when these sort of things are thrown into a movie to sell toys. You know, we're now nostalgic for that crap, apparently. Yeah. Um, it just it, everything is doesn't have any other layer other than, hey, we threw this in. Yep. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't know about this. And it's and it's funny that, you know, some people thought that the first one was a ripoff of Gremlins. But to me, the you know, this one in four, at least are much more of ripoffs of other franchises than that first one ever was than rather being more of sequels to Critters films. You know, I think two and three are decent sequels to a Critters film to an extent. But these ones are just pretty much almost ripoffs of some something else trying to cash in on. I don't know. This is the one I really just don't like. I mean, there are yeah. things I think are fine about it. Uh, in fact, I think I told you initially, I'm like, yeah, this isn't good. And then I was like, eh, maybe being too hard on. It. So I bought a copy. <laughs> it was like five or six bucks and watched it again. And I, you know, I'm glad I did because my kids, they did have a good time with it. And it's like, a, you know. That's fine. It's not the worst thing you'll see. Uh, and again, if you are a hardcore Critters fan, if as people exist, you know, then you might want to see this movie. Uh, but again, I think you really have to lower the expectations on it because this one has made it. And even for me, they may have may have had more money. They clearly have made some good looking Critters. Critters probably look about as good as they've ever looked in this movie. I don't think they're shot as well, but I think that the, the effects have, now the Keanu brothers obviously pioneered everything that there's being done in this movie. So there's, you know, they were the ones that came up with the innovation. There's nothing innovative about this movie. And that's the real problem. Nothing innovative, nothing really that interesting. And uh, the moments of fun are always like offset by the fact that the filmmaking just isn't there. No, it's not, but uh, it sounds like we should probably wrap this one up. Right. Nathan, are you, Oh, I'm crittered out at this point. What's your rating on this one? What would you give it? This is a four, I think. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing for me. We're we're in sync on four of the five critter movies, so that's pretty good knowing how our ratings usually go. But 
I'd give it a four too. But I, I think the thing is, I think we're on the same track on Critters 3 to some extent. I think that we both say it's a fun movie. It's not up to the caliber of uh, where the original first two movies were headed. The scope has shrunk quite a bit. For me, it was that shrinking scope and that shrinking budget that just made me sort of wonder, well, why are we still seeing these movies? If they, don't, yeah. if they can't tell us a new story, why are we seeing them? Yeah, no, that, it, and that's the case for, you could say that about almost any horror franchise, right? It's like, why are we still here to an extent? If you're not changing up the formula, if you're yeah. not doing anything new, and if the budgets are going down each time. But Yeah, and I think that's definitely the case here. Yep. I don't know, though. I, I think as a whole, I do like the Critters series. I think, like I said earlier, you could do a lot worse than these. I think one through four, you know, they're fun movies, at least, and there's some good in those, but... Critters attack. I would, uh, you can stay away from it if you, if you really want to, but, um, what's your take on the whole franchise? Would you say it's just, it's a pretty solid one, nothing great, but nothing. So it's funny because I do think, I, I think you mentioned early on, and I sort of agree with this is that they, it is a franchise and the one through four are definitely the series in my mind. This mm-hmm. critters attacks, you can leave this alone and it doesn't affect anything and it doesn't try very hard to tie itself back in. It's more uh, the extent it's a revival. It is. It's like a, it's like a remembrance of, Hey, remember critters? It was fun. We're trying to do something in that mold. And like, so I don't know that you've basically got this franchise and then you've got critters attacks, which got, I guess series is a better way to say it. There's a critter series and then there's critters attacks and the critter series is obviously broken up into two halves too, where one and two are very much a piece of their own thing and three and four are a piece of their own Mm -hmm. thing. And I'd say that that original series is fun and there's entertainment to be had. Uh, throughout those four movies i think it gets kind of thin towards the (laughs) end you get the four and you're just about everything's just about dried up honestly and so i i I don't know that we get fully out of four without it you know uh without it getting getting to the point where the entertainment value is just about gone but there's something i like about every single movie including four a four is still a movie i think is fine Mm -hmm. you know it, it 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 isn't a it's not unwatchable. I don't feel, you know, sometimes if I, if I were to see it on television, I might sit and watch, a, you know, a little bit of it. Uh, I, I enjoyed watching the, the disc and I, I, I'd recommend it definitely from the perspective of you get the screen factory set. It's a good one. I think that overall the Critters movies, they stay basically true to what they are. Uh, this isn't a high concept. They're not going out and doing much else with it outside of that. I think what you've got here is one good movie, Critters, and then you've got a lot of little offshoots of it that you really might only be interested in if you really dig this movie. If you dig this movie, you're like, I need more of these little furballs eating people <laughs> than the go for the series. But if you feel like you're just about done at the end of Critters 1, because it's arguably the best movie with the most innovation and everything going on, I don't think you necessarily need to watch the rest of these movies but I'm glad that they're there. They do expand this world. They make it a fun place. I really enjoyed watching them as a kid. This movie does. This is a series I think that is built. I warned. I think we've warned you well about Critters too. That the content <laughs> there. Watch it first because we do get some legit nudity and stuff in this one, and there's some gore that's that's actually much stronger content than what's in the actual R-rated Critters Critters yep. Attacks, which. I don't quite understand the R rating there. Um, maybe they let a word or two slip through, but I think that uh, 
I'd recommend one through four. I really don't recommend part uh, part. I don't think Critters Attacks. It's not even numbered. I don't think Critters Attacks is one you need to see. No, honestly. no, not at all. But yeah, I'm of the same mind. This is one of those middle. I don't want to say middle of the road franchises, but it is. I mean, it's it's none of the movies I think are terrible except for Attack. But um, none of them are going to hit the highs of something like a Halloween or Friday the 13th part it's, one or two. It's, yeah, yeah, it's what you largely got in the 80s and 90s, which is yep. uh, particularly in the lower budget films. You'd get uh, one good movie that had a bunch of sequels that were basically just regurgitating or rehashing what had already been done. Once yep. in a while, you get a series that was actually, even when it was lower budget, was actually trying to go somewhere with its story, like a phantasm. But you, this is not that. This is, you got Critters, it's a good movie, and you got some sequels that are all diminishing returns. <laughs> yeah, yep. All right, Nathan, you ready to wrap this thing up? I am ready, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, why don't you give out your plugs and let everybody know where we're, let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me uh, over at Phantom Galaxy at phantomgalaxypodbean.com. And you can, uh, in addition to Podbean, you can find me in most of the podcatchers there. At Phantom Galaxy, my co-host over there is Bill Van Vagel. Trey, you come along quite often to review mm-hmm. uh, new releases with us. You're also on Phantom Video, which is an offshoot of Phantom Galaxy, where uh, myself, and you and Dave Becker discuss uh, video releases and things like that. Video, uh, Blu-ray, 4K, DVD. We try to we go through the uh, calendar releases and we go through individual movies. We're going to be looking at some movies from specific directors. So there's a lot of fun there. That's all really physical media related. And then uh, yeah, there's I do Illustrated Fan over there as well with Dave Becker. Do Strange Frequencies where Bill covers uh, music, Illustrated Fans, animated. Uh, we've got some lots of different things going on. Like we've mentioned, it's like the Russian <laughs> nesting tall of podcasts. And, uh, and I, I, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, being on here and uh, getting the chance to talk things like critters. It was a fun kind of trip down memory lane. Cause for me, that's what these movies specifically are. I think their benefit to me is where they, they popped up uh, in my youth. And I think that that might be some of the best benefit if you're, if you're uh parents looking to find some good gateway movies for your kids i think these have the opportunity to make a good impact yeah and i you know thanks so much for coming on nathan um this is a topic that you are probably pretty well suited to talk about with critters uh, and it's been a lot more fun having you on here talking about it than just you know going through them myself but maybe longer than you would have, well yeah <laughs> than you would have done on your probably own. about an hour longer but that's yeah. okay it's been a lot of fun <laughs> want to do these every once in a while to get through and you know watch some of these franchises lesser known i'm not gonna rush out to halloween or friday the 13th or any of that but some of these smaller level ones but you can um find the podcast wherever you get your podcast you can follow the podcast over on twitter at screaming ages you can join the facebook group at screaming through the ages a horror movie history podcast you can call in, leave a voicemail if you so choose at 740-297-6556. You can send an email to screaming through the ages at yahoo.com. And, you know, just tell your friends if you're liking the podcast. But until next time, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next biweekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs>